Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 80, tips for doing a solo motorcycle trip for the modern rider in a Google world, and travel rhythm. What is it? How you find it? And, um what other people's travel rhythm is. All that and more coming up today. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to some people who've really helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. So here we go. We've got Brian Greeny, Susan Bithel, Van Stitcher, Dan Mirabend, Jean-Michel Davignon, and John Sirbassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you all so much for that. It's so great to have people appreciate what we do here with Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. And remember, anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you one of our cool Adventure Rider Radio stickers. And we would love to have you consider becoming a patron supporter, which will also get you stickers and some other things. Anyway, all on our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, our flagship show is called Adventure Rider Radio. It's a separate feed. Everything's at the website, adventureriderradio.com. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for September 2022. We know about that one. Okay. Recorded live from the Canoe S Media Studio deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw Roundtable Discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined with, well, most of my esteemed regular Overland co-host. Now, surely Hardy Ricks is not with us today because she's exploring Iceland, right? Is it Iceland? Yeah, that's Brian here. Yeah, that's right. She's off to Iceland at the moment. She's uh, in the air because she was going to try and ring in if she was at an airport, but she's not. Well, don't they have phones on the airplanes now? Couldn't she have just called in that well, way? Well, too. If, if she can get access, she should try that. But um, I uh, dropped her at the airport yesterday and uh, came back, and, of course, she's left something behind. And when you say, you know, don't worry about it, sure. You can always buy something overseas. Well, this you can't buy overseas. Ooh. Any guesses? None? A hat? Cell phone? No. Passport? Vegemite. Oh. She had a specially bought a squeeze bottle of Vegemite that she could take on the plane, and I know she'll be very pissed oh. off. <laughs> so now, what will she do? Will she actually turn around when she gets there and fly back for this, or how will that work? Courier, courier. Oh, forget the courier. Don't get me started on couriers now. Anyway, before we get going too far, we've got two guests with us today. We have Mickness and Elspy Olivier from uh, Picky Picky Overland. Mickness, Elspy, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Thank you so much. Where's Mickness? Well, you know, <laughs> are you just going to sit back and say nothing at this point and let us talk for you? I'm like, <laughs> so great to have the, the both of you on. Now you guys are actually, I'm going to ask you some questions about this, but first I'm going to bring everybody else in because we have Sam Manicom as well. Sam is away from home. He's in the U S on tour. Sam, how is the road treating you so far? Um, well, at the moment I'm just South of Detroit 
And um, so far, the trip has been absolutely fantastic. And it's, um, I've actually had a couple of people comment to me recently that they enjoy my weather reports from wherever I am. So I have to say, it's an absolutely pretty day outside. And for a change, it's daylight because I'm at um, 5 p.m. and not the usual 10 p.m. So that's really nice. So far, I've been presenting at Overland Expo Mountain, Western Colorado, and then down to Wailing Wayne in the Wayne National Forest in Ohio, which was just brilliant fun. And I'm absolutely blown away by the number of Adventure Rider Radio and raw listeners uh, that uh, came up to say hello to me. It's absolutely fantastic to, to get a chance to, to meet everybody. So if you're listening and you were one of those, thank you very much for, for coming over to say hello. It was great to meet you. Sam, I, I can notice a distinct difference between the uh, the 10 o'clock at night to five. Your your speech is more crisp and you're talking much faster. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the lack of whiskey. Uh, <laughs> are you are you in a dry state? Is that what the problem is? Anyway, so we <laughs> we heard Brian in there. We're going to bring Michelle Lampfair in the Black Hills of South Dakota. I'm assuming you're at home, Michelle. I am. I'm at home. I'm still working. It's uh Still good weather here in South Dakota, so there's lots of motorcyclists out and about. Mm, wow, yeah. that's so good. And have you managed to get out and ride much? I have a little bit. I've just been doing day trips, so nothing overnight yet. I'm hoping to, before the end of September, be able to get out and do a small camping trip. I've got some good friends from uh, uh, out of town who have come to watch the motel for me in the next couple of weeks, so I hopefully have a chance to do that. Wow, that's nice, because I was that's assuming a- that's a business you can't get away from. So that's well, great. It normally is. So yeah, I feel like I hit the lottery. They're great people. So yeah. Oh, that's really nice to hear. And Grant Johnson is in British Columbia. Grant was, um, you were supposed to be riding now, weren't you? I was supposed to be riding and I'm really bummed that I'm not. And I'm really annoyed that I'm actually here. Well, actually I'm not. It's nice to be here. But <laughs> <laughs> I got to say that, don't I? Uh, no, I'm bummed that I'm not riding. My wrist, I managed to mess up my wrist and my thumb, right hand and it's just not quite right. And the doctor said, yeah, you shouldn't be riding on that. If you fall, that's going to be bad. Mm. So I'm sitting here. Two months now I haven't ridden because of the stupid sun. Oh, two mm. months. Very frustrating. Wow. But yeah. Well, I, I feel for you for the injury, but I'm, I'm not disappointed that you couldn't go. I mean, I'm, I, I was going to miss you if you weren't here. And I look forward to talking to oh, you every month nice. on this. So, yeah. Well, it worked out for us anyway. It's good to be here. Can I give some great some advice? Sure. Just get a new doctor, Grant. <laughs> you think the problem's the doctor, not the like wrist? <laughs> well, I did go for a ride a few days ago. Um, I had the bike apart and did a bunch of work on it. And I went for a little ride and, you know, it's not ready. Just street riding, just cruising along. Yeah, it's not right. Mm. So I'm hopeful for the end of the month. Another couple of three weeks. I remember when I broke my wrist, uh, I, I pushed it getting back on the bike. And I remember it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a bit of an odd feeling, you know, just not feeling that you can actually put pressure on your wrist. I'm not sure how yours is feeling, but you know what it's like for if anyone's had a break, you know what that's like. And um, it just, uh, I felt like I was only riding, you know, at 70, 80% sort of thing. And I thought as long as I'm careful. And one of the first spots I stopped at, I was with a couple other people actually who, who had um, sort of contacted us. And so there's four of us, but the first spot we stop at, there's a sandy area and I stop the bike and I get off and I think, okay, that was good. You know, I got off fine. And I walk away from the bike, my foot hooks on a fence that's buried in the sand <laughs> and oh. I go tripping forward and I think, no, 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 not the wrist, not the wrist. <laughs> so, so, I have this thing in my mind. If I fall, even when the wrist, the hand is feeling better, I'm going to, 
tuck and roll, right? right? Tuck and roll, shoulder, elbow. I got big pads on. I'll be fine because I've I've messed my hands up so many times um, skiing. Every time you fall skiing, it's poles. You get your thumbs get injured, and then I fell on uh, my left side and sprained my left wrist really badly. I had to have a cast on it. Now it's my right wrist. Mm. Uh, yeah. right, careful, careful. Weak spot. <laughs> you'll be you'll be rivaling Sam for um, hospital visits if you're not careful. <laughs> That's not oh, possible. We can swap stories. <laughs> okay, I've got a friend who has 27 broken bones from multiple accidents. <laughs> Evil can wow. evil. I, I, I he just does it. I don't know. He's, Imagine he's, he crashed and so endowed and. Imagine the arthritis that comes with that. Oh, oh. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And that's only it's something you show. think of as you start to age. Dare I use that word? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of Once another you're word. you 30, you start to realize it's just not that good. <laughs> you're not made of rubber and magic anymore like you were before. Right. I wear a lot nice of rubber and magic, I tell you. <laughs> well armored, I can tell you that. I've got to pass on a nice story about a, a guy that I met who was struggling a bit, who I've finally got him back on a bike. Um, but you've got to remember, this guy lost a, a um, bottom part of his leg to a motorcycle accident, and he, mm. he battled, battled and battled and still rode okay, um, but he got some infections in that, in that stump and he had to have more of it taken off. Oh. Um, and... Um, you know, he's he loves riding his bike and he was really depressed when I saw him. I said, mate, you know, what do you love doing? I love riding bikes. Well, work towards it. Get back on the bike. Get back on it. Well, yesterday he went out and bought himself a Harley and um, he reckons that he's right to ride again and he's going to ride down from um, Queensland to see us um, in the next few months, which is just fantastic. Wow. You know, you've nice. got to live your life. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, really tell him about inspiring. Dave Barr. Tell him about Dave Barr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did um, relate that story about Dave. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, Sorry I, about that. It's a bit of a downer, but you know. I think it's positive. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. You know what you can do. Now, um, too many people just don't quite push themselves at all. They just kind of give up too early, too easily. I think yeah. you, you, in order to keep living life and making life interesting and fun, you got to push it sometimes. Just, you know, what, like Brian said, what do you like doing? Well, figure out how to make it work. Yeah. I know a guy who lost a hand. He was still riding. It's yeah. tough though. When, like, I mean, it's one thing to have, I mean, you know, none of us are in that situation. I think mm. all the, the emotions that go along with it, I, I bet that's really difficult to do. A lot easier to say, you know, to give the advice than to actually deal with it. For yeah. sure. So I was going to mention Mick, Mickness and Elsby, um, they're, uh, they're, they're home in South Africa. Now you guys have been traveling for, I don't know how many years now you're back home. I'm kind of curious. What's that like? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how are you guys spending your yeah. days? Well, we, it's a bit of a mixture at the moment because, uh, we are back home first of all, to see friends and family, but also to do some business. I mean, after being away for almost three years, there's quite a lot on the agenda. So we've been back just over five months, but in that five months, about three months is dedicated to doing some uh, work in the background. But yeah, it's been, it's been good. 
So, we, haven't, we haven't spent as much time with, with friends as we, as, and family as we wanted to, but it's, it's going well. It's, we at least get some riding in and, and um, we in Cape Town, which is always nice. Cape Town is always yeah, a nice, nice place to be. Very fortunate in South Africa that all year round is riding season. Mm, yeah, just rub that in as we go into fall here. Thank you very much. That's, <laughs> that's right. So do, does the road call you back? Oh. Do you get that feeling of, I mean, do you guys feel kind of ordinary now? Oh, yeah, no, the way riders calling yeah. us. <laughs> we, we actually, we have, we have stress figuring out how we're going to do all this before we go back. Not stress about doing this stuff. We, we're now on counting down the weeks yeah. before we fly. <laughs> oh, so you, you do have a set date to go back to your motorcycles and start riding again and, and doing your, what you yes, normally do. Yes, we're hoping in November, yeah. Mm, right. So, so the plan is that we that we get back to Uruguay, Uruguay, um, do a bit of work in the motorcycles that they need a little bit of attention and parts I need to take with, and then um, ride down to Patagonia again. I love that place, man. It is, it's really beautiful. So, uh, and you have to do it before April, May, before they start to get winter and, and close borders again. So we're going to try and get back there before that and then go back up again. I don't know. You guys need to try and get to the South Africa Travelers Meeting, November 3? Yeah, November 3. It's in, in Potchefstroom. Yes, we know about it. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke to Kubis about it. And we, we, we're going to try. I'm not sure if we, if we will make it, but, but it is. Yeah, we're certainly going to try. Because we're certainly going to try and, and get there. Because he's, he's been asking us every year and everywhere, like, I know we, we're stuck in Bolivia. Oh, no, sorry, we're stuck in Chile. Oh, no, sorry, we're stuck in Chile. <laughs> stuck. <laughs> yeah, so we, had, we, had, we had excuses, but this time around, I, I'm not sure he's going to fall for it. <laughs> no, I don't think he will. Cobus will, will get you there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> can. It's always yeah. such a good event. Oh, no, 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 we I mean, yeah. we did the first one, and, and basically after that, we missed every single one of them afterwards. Yeah, being out of the country. Yeah. 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 Well, I remember meeting you there at the first one. That was great. It was oh, yeah, an awesome great. meeting, small awesome but meeting. really nice. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're, we're talking about um, we're talking about technology today. I'm curious because I, I came across or got got thinking about this bikes with tip over switches or tip over over protection. Is anyone riding a bike with a tip over switch? I have no idea what it is. I've never heard about it, and I'm I'm getting alarmed just to hearing about it. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm <laughs> yeah, glad you haven't heard about it because it's always, always nice to be able to enlighten someone on this. So, so this tip-over switch is a switch in the motorcycle that that can tell when the bike is flopped over and it shuts it down. It's kind of, a, I guess, an, like an accident protection. This is how I take it anyways. It's um, more like, like a car. You know, cars have it where if, they're, if they sense they're in an accident, they'll shut down the fuel pump so you don't have pu- uh, fuel pumping all over an accident scene. I kind of think that's what it's about. But basically, if you drop your bike, it's got this tip over protection that shuts it down and you've got to turn your ignition off and turn it back on to start your bike up again. That's my oh, That idea. sounds like, like something. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the old carburetor bikes, it won't help because the, the fuel will still pump out of the carburetor all the time. So it doesn't matter. Well, that's <laughs> true too. It, doesn't some of the Africa twins have, um, don't they have fuel pumps with carburetors? I think the older older ones, not the new ones. No, but I mean, the older ones, I mean. Yeah, I thought the there was something ones, to do with a fuel pump. Obviously, it has to do with the level of the, the, the fuel tank, I, I assume. Yep. But but in any uh, case... I've never forgotten laying um, in the middle of a four-lane highway in Australia with my bike up on top, ups, upside down on top of me and petrol pouring out all over my uh, my riding jeans. 
you know, one way it was actually quite pleasant because as the petrol evaporated, that was the only part of my body that was cool. <laughs> There's a trick you need to add to the list of tips for travelers. Too, too long, pour gasoline on you. That's, that's, that's when the boys from Hells Angels picked you up, wasn't it, Sam? Yeah, that's right. And sort of guy on this um, black and gold um, chopper with the uh, um, really long forks, one hand on his monkey bars and looking down at me and I'm underneath my bike. And his, um, his, his question was, good day, mate. How's it going? <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Just thirsty. Yeah. Were, were you English and polite and said, oh, just fine? How are you? Oh, I was. I was, <laughs> I was terribly English. And I looked up at him. I'm trying not to laugh because he had a um, Second World War um, army helmet on his head with two cow horns sticking out the side. And I'm sort of looking up at him and, and oh, it's, it's not too good down here, actually. But, you know, no worries, mate. We'll get her off you. And they did just that and then just roared off on their, their Harley Davidsons. And that was that. So um, it was a lucky encounter. Why were you upside down with your bike on top of you on a road? <laughs> just curious. No, it wasn't my fault. Careful, Jim. <laughs> I didn't make any assumptions. Um, no, quite. No, um, I was just north of Brisbane and the, the main road north of Brisbane was four lanes, so two on each side. And um, whenever there's a junction, there were um, red light crossroads. So I saw a lay-by just after one of them and I thought, oh, perfect space to stop um, because I can have a drink of water, check my map and uh, see where I'm at, where I am. And then when the lights turn on red, um, I can just pull out without being under the pressure of the traffic. And um, I did just that. Drink, map, red lights, pull out, and bang. They just hit me from the side. Pale blue, that was all I knew. Um, a guy lived just down in, in a dip because I was behind some bushes. He didn't see that I was there. But he was sat on his front drive waiting for um, the lights to go red and then floored it. And out he came. And we sort of um, kind of met each other. He stopped a, a little bit down the road, and then he saw the Hells Angels. So he's walking back down the road thinking, no. I said, Hell's Angel, I said, Hell's Angel, this is going to be bad. Oh, so when he got to me and found that it was just a skinny Brit, he was, um, yeah, really happy. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was mentioning the the, the tip over protection because I, I was just thinking about, because we're talking about technology, you know, and I'm sort of amazed. I don't have a new bike. I, I, I always feel like it's fairly new, but it's the same as Sam's. It's, it's 2013. It's got a lot of electronics on it. But um, I'm hearing people say stuff like they've got sensors on there telling them that their suspension has a problem with their, with their shock or their rebound or something like this. Like a lot of sensors, a lot of technology, which is, you know, pretty impressive. Kind of scary, I guess, too. So, so motorcycles now have technology just like everything else. I mean, you know, cars are becoming more complicated. In many ways, the technology makes our life easier and, and, and I'll get to a point here, if you just bear with me, it, it gets easier. For instance, um, think of a, a car, we just talked about uh, carbureted motorcycles compared to fuel injected. You start a fuel injected motorcycle, it revs up, even if it's cold outside, it revs up and it slowly brings the revs down as the engine warms up. And you can, you know, take your tent down, do whatever it is you're doing if you're, if you're on a trip. Start a, uh, a carbureted bike, you have to set the choke manually. It's not a big deal, but you start it up and then you walk away and you do something. And then when it starts to chug away because it's running too rich, as the engine warms up, you got to run over and close the throttle, close the choke a little bit, and then keep doing that. You know, might run over a couple of times to, to close the choke on your bike. So it's it's convenient, right? There's um, there's that. Not to mention the mountains. Think of fuel injection for riding the mountains. While a carbureted bike may be chugging its way up a mountain slope as it gets into the higher elevations, 
a fuel injected bike could zip right by them. The rider probably wondering what they're doing or why they're going so slow because the computer on their bike has, has done all the calculations and changed the, the injection, uh, the fuel injection for the bike to the point where they, you hardly notice the difference. So where I'm getting to with this is, so following this, this, this line of thinking of technology making it easier, does having a bike that is more reliable because of technology make it less of an adventure or does it, does it take away from the experience? What do you guys I, think about that? I, I don't think so. I, when I bought my BMW to, to ride the world, uh, I bought it brand new and I ordered it without the electronic suspension adjustment. This is 2008. And uh, I had to fight with them to just put normal suspension on the bike because had problems with them seizing and all sorts of things. And I'm thinking, well, if I if I need a shocker while we're travelling, I can just buy another shocker and put it in, you know. So I fitted the bike with Olin's shockers and um, uh, just standard shockers. And, uh, well, I did break one, as you know, up in Alaska when we were travelling up through there. Um, and it was replaced, simple. I've had it rebuilt three or four times, I think maybe five times now. Um, and um, look, technology is wonderful to a certain point. Um, my bike's fuel injected, and sure, it, it had, I had no problems going up mountains in South America or anywhere else. Um, and it handled shitty fuel in Russia and all that sort of stuff. But um, I, well, I don't know. I, I think sometimes we're going too far. I've been testing bikes with, um, you know, lean. Um, sensors in them so it actually cuts the power if it feels like the back wheel is starting to lose traction and it can be a little bit weird sometimes you know when you when you feel these things kick in you mean um, lateral but, traction on this because you know yes. any sort of traction control if the wheel starts to spin yep. will will reduce the throttle but yep. you're talking the lean yep. sensor senses that you may be having some lateral movement because the tire is slipping sideways wow yep yep Yep, yep, uh, yep. I think it's the latest 1200 Tiger's got something like six or seven computer systems in it. And um, I'm going to test ride the, the, the 1200 Tiger um, in the next, well, hopefully in the next month or so. And But that, there's that. And yesterday I was in a car, which is a Kia EV6. It's a totally electric. Um, drove Shirley to the airport and, and back in that with a mate. A mate um, he's a car tester and he had this thing. And so at one stage there, we got on a back road and he said, just see how this thing goes. He stopped and this thing just took off like you would not believe. <laughs> but it actually has torque converters in it to stop it digging holes in the bitumen. It's got that much power. Yes. Um, uh, it, it just... Um, uh, it, it moderates the the, the traction on, onto the road until it gets to that point where, yep, I've got enough traction, and then bang, it's off. Wow. Of uh, yeah, and that's when you say tor- not- torque converters, you're not talking like viscous coupler. You're you're talking about no, some no. sort of programming in it. Some sort of program. I don't know how it works. No idea, but I was very impressed with it. And this was the base model car. Boy, could yeah. it go? Yeah, it, it's embarrassing anyway. for 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 gas powered vehicles. <laughs> these like these electric vehicles, <laughs> what they do, they make gas powered look so so sluggish. And, yeah. uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I digressed a little bit, Jim, but I just thought you'd be interested in that. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's crazy. But, but I mean, so uh, well, I mean, and there's a lot of technology in our bikes that we do like, that we do adapt. I think you sort of get used to it after a while, though, don't you? Because even the fuel injection was was something that was you know a lot of people have sort of pushed back against. Um, ABS brakes. I mean, look at ABS now. They've got amazing systems. I mean, Chris Birch. Uh, was on the show just not long ago, a couple of weeks back uh, for one of our rider skills. And he was saying that um, he leaves the ABS on all the time. Like, uh, and he sets it on yeah. off-road ABS because it's so good. There's no reason to turn it off. You, you don't need to disengage a modern ABS system now for an adventure bike. Yeah, that's okay. right. But that is, that is um, safety. And I, I'm, I'm okay with safety because ABS is saved by us uh, quite a couple of times. Fuel injection is a no-brainer. I mean, damn, the carburetors, we ride the stuff and I don't like them. Um, but I think a lot of the electronics is just, is just fluff. It's just, I mean, we have electronics that, that, that um, takes the, the engine, that breaks the engine power. Why? Because the engine is too powerful. Maybe we can't ride the damn bikes that powerful, so they retard the, the stuff. And I'm a bit of an undertow thinking on this because... I like to ride motorcycles because I like riding motorcycles. I don't want to ride laptops. I want to be able to, to you know, it's, it's on my skin to, to twist the throttle. It's on my skin when I'm in, in rain to understand when I'm supposed to twist it and, and, you know, go slower and all those kind of things. So, And I don't need to have um, seven settings for the screen if it's black or a blue or a, or a light gray or something. I don't want to have that. <laughs> that does sound neat, though. I like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and the electronic suspension. Well, I, I don't know. Set it in the middle because they, now you're riding dirt and the next moment you're in a – in a in a in a hilly type of country with a lot of rocks, and I'm, I'm not going to get off the no. bike and set the stuff every single time that happens. No, all I hear is stuff that can break. That can break, yeah. Mm. And then, yeah. You know, but but so the ABS, sure. I mean, it, it's a safety critical thing, and 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 it did help a lot for, for a lot of people. And I think it, it's something good to have in the bikes. And ABS has come such a long way. I mean, I remember the the first ABS bikes when you break it at one meter intervals as it slipped. Um, which now is not the case. So, uh, I see the new Dugatti Multistrada. You can set the rear suspension, the rear brake higher, lower, the front brake different from the rear brake. I'm not sure I want to go for all that nonsense just to ride a bike. I'm not sure everybody knows how to set it. No, that's the key. That's do. the key, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you know, to, to mess with all this stuff. I don't know. If they, if they put all these safety features in and it takes all the risk out of riding, I think I might get into hang gliding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I but think we have good. to be very careful yeah. here because there's effectively two classes of people out there. Um, and, and to go back a little bit, we have to keep in mind that motorcyclists are aging out. There are fewer and fewer young people coming in. And they're the ones that like the technology. They're not experienced riders. They're, they don't have the skill to control a modern 1,000cc, for instance, motorcycle at all. They have no clue. So the idea now, I think, is to give them all the technology that excites them because, ooh, it's technology and it's really cool. And basically it saves their ass because they don't know how to ride. Well, that's harsh. If I get on a 1,000cc sports bike, I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble if I get out there and try and push it. Because they have so much horsepower. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, my last race bike was a 500 Suzuki two-stroke, and it was good for 165 miles an hour. And there were moments when it was just plain flat terrifying. 
you can buy one of those off the showroom floor today that'll beat that thing hollow with way more horsepower, double or triple the horsepower. And to a beginning rider, and beginning riders go out and buy 1,000cc sports bikes. Without all that technology, we'd have more bodies on, in the hospital than we do now, and we already have more than we need. Like but, um, yeah, but Grant, is that not the whole thing? I mean, that we also started that. that we started with small bikes. You didn't ride a, a 660 or a 610 at the time because that, that time it was really powerful stuff. But you yeah. also worked up to it, and I, and I think it's no different today. Um, uh, I mean, it's like anything. You don't start in racing at, at the pinnacle of a V8. You start with something small. But be that as it may, it's, um, the, I think what, what um, Jim is asking is, does it make a difference in adventure? I, I don't think so. I mean, ride whatever whatever you want. You, you're going to look for the adventure somewhere. If you want to take a 300 kilogram um, at 1200 into rocky terrain and you know, that's your adventure, then sure. Uh, I think we have a lot of opportunities for different people. Because the nice thing about motorcycling is it's not one thing for one person. It's, it's different levels, different bikes, different terrains, different type of riding trips. And I think it also depends on where you're going to ride. I mean, if I'm close to home and I've got all the insurance, yes, give me the bike with all the bells and whistles. But if I'm going to be riding quite a distance away from my country, uh, there's no support and there's no insurance on the motorcycle, I think then I would still stick to the basic. Mm. Yeah, to- I totally agree with that. But it's, you know, we all said horses for courses. It depends mm. on what you want and what you're going to do, what your level of skill is. Yes. Or not yeah. level of skill. I mean, yeah. if, if I was going to buy a sports bike now, I'd buy a thousand cc and I'd want all the gadgetry. Thank you very much because that's going to save my ass. It doesn't matter how mm. good you are or how bad a rider you are on a, on a high-end sports bike. You kind of need that stuff these days. But but what, uh, I, what I'm saying here, the question I'm posing is, is Mickness really is on the right track there, is what I'm saying is, does it change the fact that you're still on an adventure? Just because your bike is more reliable, does it make it less adventurous? Because you have no. a bike that will start and run because your rims yeah. are probably better than any rims you know, in history, all that sort of stuff. It does, it's never mattered. Run what yeah. you've got. Yeah. I think it's just another tool in your proverbial toolkit. Um, you know, as all sorts of technology advances, we're able to do things with GPS and route planning and communications and all of those things as the technology moves forward those new advances on motorcycles give you more options and it helps you a little bit, but I don't think it takes away from the adventure. Um, And it it doesn't change the fact that you're still out there in the world dealing with weather and conditions and terrain and roads and challenges and obstacles and everything else. Those things are just helping you stay a little bit more safe and have, uh, you know, a little bit more options as far as what your bike's capabilities are. Mm. I think that Mignus um, Elsby and um, Michelle, you're all absolutely right. You're just sitting different nails on the head on, on the subject. I think that there is a big difference between um, the bike you ride at home and the bike you might take on a longer trip as far as maintenance and repairs and things like that are concerned. Um, and I think that, Michelle, you're absolutely right with, well, I mean, we can't be Luddites. There's, there's advances in technology that do make life an awful lot better, um, easier, safer, more fun. Um, but it's up to us as individuals to look at the various different options with the bikes and to choose what us the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Sam, you yeah. said there we can't all be Leadites. Sorry, can you just remind me what bike you have at home? 
<laughs> Do you know, Jim, people often ask me if you were going to go around the world again, um, would, what bike would you take? And actually, uh, if it wasn't for the price of um, fuel nowadays, then if uh, Libby still was in good condition, I would probably go on her because for the whole eight-year trip, I reckon that 80% of the time she was just brilliant fun to ride. 15% of the time, yeah, she could be a bit of a challenge from, from time to time and 5% of the time, you know, really thick mud and very deep soft sand, she was a right pig. Yeah. But I reckon <laughs> that if I can get 95% bike that makes me feel happy and, and have some fun riding and still gives me challenges, gets me from where I want to go and is fairly straightforward, um, then yeah, why not? You know, this makes me think of, you know, I was just thinking as we're talking about this, if you look at um, something like kayaking, now, you know, maybe we're not into kayaking, but you've probably seen videos of kayakers nowadays doing unbelievable things, going over waterfalls. Mm. There's all kinds of videos showing that. Dropping down waterfalls that are, you know, many feet tall, and I don't want to quote any because I don't know exactly how far, but 80 feet, I'm sure, would be no problem at all for them. It's extreme. They're doing it with boats that weren't around before. This is new technology. And the reason that they're able to do it is because of these boats, because of the new technology. And if you if you looked at the boat design, you see they've really changed over the years from these longer, straighter things, these short little pug-shaped uh, things, almost like a shoe turned up. And, and it's all to do with design. So that's technology, not only in design, but also materials made, same as a motorcycle. So really what we're doing is what we're able to do with the bikes is probably get into some stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise got into. Maybe, you know, if we had an old R80 GS or something like that, maybe it wouldn't get where you would get with a modern bike. Now, I don't want to get into capabilities here. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not attacking capabilities of an older bike. I'm just saying that the adventure doesn't change. You just tend to do more with it. You know, so if you could go 10 feet into the mud with your old bike and this new bike will take you 20, well, you're going to go to the 20 and you're still going to have adventure. You know what I mean? Mm. An adventure is not only riding the motorcycle, it's all of the things that happen to you and your experiences along the way. Mm -hmm. um, for me, a motorcycle is a wonderful tool to have that gets me um, to adventure. I think that's the important thing. It's, it, it's a tool to get you somewhere, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a, in a car even, so long as you are getting somewhere new and different from where you are, it's an adventure. I mean, it could be 100 miles down the road, doesn't matter. It's still... If it's new to you, it's an adventure for you. That's all that matters. Grant, a favorite saying of mine is, um, it doesn't matter how you travel, what matters is that you travel, but motorcycles are best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the while back, not a while back, a long time back, people said to me, oh, it's a motorbike break. It's part of the adventure stuff. Well, yes, at the time. Currently, I feel like I don't have time to work on motorcycles next to the road. I'll do that at home. I want to travel. I want to get the bike. Let's go. So if it's fuel injection and the thing is reliable, I'm happy with that. The rest is my adventures, you know, getting to places where I can probably not pick up the bike or you can probably not ride that for me. But having bikes break, man, that's old school. That, that, <laughs> I don't want that to <laughs> Give me that. Not desirable. <laughs> you're still going to get you know, problems going to happen on the road and you're still going to sort it out. Exactly. People are going to help you. And, yeah, that's just life. Yeah, so what you're saying is, Brian, you're not going to miss out. You're still going to have problems. Don't worry, relax. You've got a new bike, but you're still going to get in trouble. It'll come to you. Yeah, you're still going to get flat tires. Yeah, flat yeah. tires. That's a tough one. So we're leading it, where we're going here is we're talking about technology. And, and our topic is tips for doing a solo motorcycle trip for the modern rider. And, and I'll say in a Google world. So we're, we're looking at, this isn't technology necessarily with motorcycles, but it, but it's all connected, right? All technology. So 
travel, solo in particular, you know, I'm like, look at it now. You can look down a street and see the buildings. You can see the curb of a street from the other side of the world on our phone, no less. I mean, you know, that's amazing. We can book accommodations on our cell phone without ever talking to anyone. And, and just 20 years ago or so, you'd be sort of off grid, so to speak, for maybe days or weeks until you find an internet cafe or, or something like that. And now if you're, if you disappear for like a day where you don't have cell service, you're probably going to be missed. It's, it's incredible. The connection we have with technology and for the solo traveler, for the solo traveler, communication can be huge. That feeling of worry of being off in a strange land without the backup, which I think is a, a probably a, a, um, a, a high concern for many solo travelers that suddenly disappears or at least fades to some degree with the advancement in technology and, and communication in particular. One argument is that pre-internet, and we've talked about this before, pre-internet travel is, is maybe more mysterious or, or maybe even in some people's opinion, maybe more of an adventure, but having the, the connection and technology which, which we're calling sort of loosely today is, you know, living in a Google world, since we seem to Google everything nowadays, that connection, the technology, that makes things easier. So does it also open up new possibilities that would have been missed or overlooked? I used the example there just a minute ago about, you know, going to the mud 10 feet, and maybe with your new high-tech bike, you could go 20 feet. Does that empower a solo traveler? And we're, and we're just talking about solo travelers here. Could it empower the solo traveler to do things or experience things that he or she may have never considered or just wouldn't have taken a chance on before? I think so. Yes. Um, it just, from my point of view, I mean, I, I mostly travel with Mechnes, but just having even something like the spot or the Garmin device with you is one, a peace of mind and it would, actually make you venture into areas where you wouldn't have gone before because if you really get into trouble you know you can just press a button and and you will get help so i think yeah you can't be stupid about it but i think in a sense yes it it does open a different adventure for you there's also thing when we've met some people they they i mean it's it's nice looking at Google Earth and all this kind of stuff, but once you've been in meat space in real life and you're there, suddenly it's a wild world, you know, it's, a, it's an open place and you want to go into places and then people get second-guessing, they, they start to second-guess themselves and maybe they don't want to do it because they don't have enough information and they don't do it. And afterwards, somebody else would tell them, no, no, we went there, it wasn't that bad. And like, oh, damn, you know, but I missed that. So maybe some of the technology can be a bit, make it too easy on some instances, but in other instances, it will probably take solo travelers into places where they normally second guess themselves and they, if they have a bit more information about what's happening there, what the terrain looks like, they will probably venture in there, uh, you know, which I, they wouldn't have done in the past. Mm. Yeah, that was, that's kind of a personal thing, isn't it? Where you sort of, you're learning to wade through the information. I mean, nowadays there's so much information on every topic, good and bad and misleading and, and direct that you can, you can get lost. You, you certainly can. And I think that's sort of a, almost a personal thing where you have to figure out, you have to learn how to do research, I guess, really is what I'm saying. Well, we, have, I mean, we travel together and even, even us, I mean, you, you speak, I mean, you guys know, often you speak to local, local people, you ask them about something and they, they tell you something and you, you eventually go to the places like it's completely uh, incorrect information they gave you. And they live a hundred kilometers or 200 miles from a place, you know, so, and then mm -hmm. you still do your own homework. So, for solo people, I think it, it it's 
not crucial, but it makes life easier for them that, that in, in the absence of information or the absence of good, reliable information, they can still get a bit more information from technology. Like you said, it, it, it's abundance now right. to make decisions for them to go into places. I think that the technology that's around uh, now, uh, a lot of it is absolutely fantastic because you, you're quite right. It opens up a world of possibilities. It's um, It used to be so easy to ride on past something um, that was just 15 miles away. Um, a drop-dead gorgeous view or a great road or whatever else it might have been, historical sites, just because you didn't know it was there. But the technology is there now so you can find all of these things. Um, and I think people who take advantage of using modern technology but um, it, it bothers me when I meet people. For example, there was one guy that I met. He was riding solo and he would book his hotel in advance. Um, this was in South America. And um, every night when he got to his hotel, the first thing he'd do after he'd unpacked and had a shower was um, he would sit and look at um, Google Earth and he'd zoom right in and he'd follow the whole route that he was thinking about riding the next day so he could see um, 100 yards by 100 yards exactly what the road surface was like. And um, if there was anything there that was a little bit dodgy from Google Earth, then um, he'd start having a look for another route. And um, I just thought, gosh. And it was almost as if he was riding with blinkers on. He was so reliant on technology to tell him whether it was going to be safe or not. Actually, he'd, he seemed to stop taking any risks and gambles and side turnings never seemed to be in his choice of route because he hadn't researched them. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. There's two, two ways of looking at it, I, I think. Um, technology nowadays for a solo rider can be a little bit of a safety net to, um, you know, show you where you, you can go, what you can do. Um, it can be a safety net for your family to be in touch with you. But it can also allow you to stretch your limits a little bit too um, if uh, you want to go a little bit further. But what you're talking about, Sam, I reckon comes down to the personality of um, the traveller. Mm -hmm. You know, some people um, pour over a map and in the old days and strap it, stick on their tank the, the map with their route that they're going to take and they don't deviate off it. I think that's the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, and it, it comes down to research in the old days. I've got a, a bookcase full in a bedroom here full of uh, Lonely Planet guidebooks where we would research before we left mm -hmm. as to what we'd like to see and what we'd like to do. But when you get on the road, yeah, you, you, you might do those things, but you'll be referred to, like Magnus was talking about, you talk to the locals and they'll tell you, oh, go here, go there, go and have a look at this. Uh, and you, you've got to be a little bit flexible. I reckon it's a, mm -hmm. it's a great thing, the, the latest technology, but mix and match it with um, yeah. the idea yeah. of talking to people. Brian, you just said safer there. You, you said the word safer. And, and that's one thing I was thinking about. Is a solo traveler safer now with connection and technology and why? Uh, I, I don't know whether it's safer or it's a safety net. Uh, you think about it as, uh, yeah, I can go to that remote village, but, you know, um, if something goes wrong, I've got my, my EPIRB or, you know, I, I've got a mobile or a sat phone or whatever I've got. Um, so, yeah, I can I can push that boundary a little bit further. Well, that's, that's safer then. Yeah. Arguably, arguably, it's the other way around. By pushing, by thinking you've got the information, thinking you've got the information, you've got the up-to-date information, you push your boundaries, 
maybe you shouldn't have pushed them quite that much. So you're actually less safe. Mm. Well, well, that, that, that's true, Sam, uh, uh, Grant. Uh, and then the classic example is the two Italians who um, um, ended up going into the wrong area, into the wrong favela, uh, mm. uh, trying to get to the, um, the, the, the cross in Buenos Aires. Mm. And I mean, they're getting dead. Mm. That's a classic example. Yeah. Well, and again, though, that's, that's, that's certain varying degrees. Now, we talked about this a little bit in several instances. One was, Grant, you said about the motorcycle, how you can get yourself in trouble on the motorcycle because it's too powerful for you. Uh, LSB, you mentioned about the spot, having the spot or whatever, a satellite communicator where you can press the SOS button. But you said, you know, you gotta, you got to have it, uh, you know, use it within reason, right? You don't act like you're a hero and you're um, sort of can be saved from anything just by pressing this button. So that, that's, sort of, that's sort of like like talking about degrees of, uh, of common sense, I guess, is what it is with devices, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even, even in, uh, uh, we were in Chile, um, it was somewhere somewhere close to the Bolivian border. It was really remote. A policeman stopped us and he said, listen, be careful. The guy on a, on a the German guy on a, on a 12.50 was on his own, own there. He crashed. He pressed the button. It took him 16 hours to get to him. So you still, even if you do have the, if you think it's a, it's a, what it, it's a comfort, it's a, it's a com- mind comfort thing that you have in the back of your mind that you're going to get rescued. It's still going to take you 16 hours in some places. And in places like Angola, they're probably not going to race you at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think yeah. it's a, like anything in life. It's a bit of a, a, a reasoning or a balance that you have to keep for yourself. Uh, yes, don't be unreasonable and uh, use devices or you uh, abuse people on social media just because you can or it's there. You still have to think it through or use a bit of logic. Um, I was certainly thinking about um, the stuff that I've seen um, Ignis and Elsie um, post online and how they use technology to get into some just simply incredible parts of the world. And I like the balance that you guys do. But I also like the fact that when you stretch yourselves, you always stretch yourselves using common sense. And perhaps the word, that's the, the key word here. Technology is available to us, but um, it's just going to get us into trouble if we don't use common sense at the same time. Yeah. And I I would say as a solo female traveler, the technology that's out there now between satellite devices, GPS systems, navigation um, assistance, communication, all those things, they give me, I think, a comfort level to actually go out and explore even what maybe some people would have thought is not super challenging routes or places. Um, But traveling, you know, into Baja, I, I... feel comfortable doing that on a bike by myself or going into other countries in a way that I probably wouldn't have without some of those tools. And I think it gives my family peace of mind. So to be able to, you know, have the backup system and be able to press a button, a button on my spot tracker, if something happens, I I don't take that for granted. And I, I feel like I use common sense and I think the vast majority of people do, but there are certainly people that really push their limits when they think that these what are meant to be serving as safety nets and last resorts are tools for them. And and I don't think that they're meant to be used in that capacity. So you're right. I think it all boils down to common sense. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Michelle, what, what I'm picturing here is that when you're talking about going off and riding in, for instance, in Baja and, uh-huh. and you're alone, the, the decision to go and ride in that area, you're sort of sitting on the fence without technology. You're thinking I'll probably be fine. Everything will probably be fine, but 
I won't, or I'm not comfortable taking the chance without technology or without the, you know, the safety, the in reach or whatever it is that you, that someone can have. That device is just that little bit extra that says, okay, that takes me up a notch and I can do this with that comfort of knowing, I mean, we all know everything, anything can go wrong, but right. it's that it's makes the difference between you going or not is what I'm trying to say. It, it can, absolutely. And I remember the first time that I was looking at crossing into Mexico or going on the trip to South America, and I had attended, and this is probably 10 years ago or more, a Horizons Unlimited date. And at that point, before some of the technology was around, we actually exchanged uh, email addresses and phone numbers and contacts. So I had someone that I knew that eventually I could get to in Mexico if I needed help. So I, I had a handful of contacts when I was crossing, you know, the, the border and going into Mexico, but it wasn't something I, I was carrying a spot tracker at that point, but that was pretty early on in the system where I didn't know if, if you press the SOS button, if anybody was even going to show up. So I didn't take it for granted. Um, but yeah, there, there's no question now. I don't necessarily have the contacts or people that I'm emailing and saying, Hey, I'm going to be in this town at this date. I feel more comfortable being a little bit off leash, so to speak. And I will go out and do a little bit more wild camping. I am responsible about that, but I, I feel more comfortable doing things solo. If I'm going somewhere, even here in the U.S., if I'm going to go into Wyoming and go camping for a weekend and I'm out and about hiking by myself, it just gives me a comfort level to know that, I mean, even if I fell, I'm carrying my spot tracker with me so that when I'm out and about, I... I have a bit more freedom and comfort level that um, there's some technology there that's going to keep me a little bit safer. Wouldn't that go for technology with a bike as well? I mean, I mean, if let's say you're not into repairing your motorcycle or, or you have limited skills, um, a, certainly a bike that's more reliable, that there's less chance of it breaking down would give you that feeling of uh, more independence, being able to do something like that. You know, I'm, I'm on the fence about it. Yes, I think so. But I also feel like I've been actually test riding bikes. I'm trying to decide what I'm going to move on to post KLR. Well, and I should say with KLR because I'll probably (laughs) always keep my KLR. Um, But I have to say some of the new technology is a little bit intimidating to me, the intelligent suspension and some of the different riding modes, because I have been riding such a simple bike. Uh, You know, it's going to take some practice, I'll probably spend quite a bit of time exploring and practicing riding different terrain in my own part of the country for a while before I feel comfortable taking something out for a long distance ride. Certainly in the U.S., I'd feel more comfortable, but crossing borders internationally, I'm going to want a comfort level that I I can use um, adequately and skillfully the technology that comes with the bike and that I'm going to have support services for the bike. If it's new technology, I want to make sure they've worked the bugs out and I can get service as I'm traveling, et cetera. Are you worried more about the the bike knowing more than you do? <laughs> Which is what oh, I would no. worry about. Or are you <laughs> That's more, a given. I'm just being funny. <laughs> yeah. there, but, but, or are you worried about that, the problem with the bike? Like if it breaks down, how how far back are you going to be set here with this bike that's this super technology that you can't get serviced? I'm probably more worried about the latter just because I'm so used to having such a simple bike that I've been lucky enough to easily get parts for in other countries and, you know, have the capabilities of either working on it or having someone that can work on it really easily. So I kind of like a simple bike. I'm more old school than I'd like to admit, maybe. I can't believe you're talking about your KLR like that, calling it a simple (laughs) bike. What what, what are you looking at, Michelle? What, what, What bikes are you looking at? 
I have been looking at a Triumph Scrambler. Ooh, oh, wow. Ooh. Nice. Yeah. yeah, they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they're uh, fun to ride. I wouldn't yeah. mind one. <laughs> there you go. I'm not alone. I'm glad to hear that. Well, hopefully Triumph is listening and they can supply us all with one. That would be very cool, <laughs> hey, isn't it? And then we can please, all talk please. about it. <laughs> I would sign up for that, yes. Uh, if we had money or I was able to convince Triumph, I would have asked him for two. Just because it's such a stupid, no, no, it's not a stupid, it's, a, it's such a difficult or a, or a different tool for the job to go around the world with all use them. Just, but it, it's such fun bikes to ride those. Yeah. You're, hang absolutely. on, Magnus, were, were you, I, I sort of missed part of what you're saying. Are you saying that you're trying, you would like to try and convince Triumph to give you a scrambler so you could ride it around the world because it's not really what it's meant for? <laughs> yeah. You know, take, take, take something so. So obviously not the tool for the job. Go to it with that. It's probably going to end in tears, but just because, yeah, you know. Well, I think we most overlanders, four wheeler overlanders, will look at a motorcycle, load it all up with all the bags and everything, and say that's something a tool that's not meant for the job. Exactly. <laughs> just fun to see the thought in here, because we're talking about the difference. Let's say between fuel-injected and, and carburetted bikes and modern technology versus older technology, which is easier to keep going on the road and so on. A friend of mine runs a garage in the UK, and he was saying that he almost finds it impossible now to find mechanics. He can find technicians, but not mechanics. And I wonder how that is beginning to change in the world as a whole. Yeah, sure, in the little villages way off the beaten track, you'll find a mechanic and a welder and this sort of stuff. But um, in the larger towns and so on, are mechanics becoming um, a rarer breed, but technicians not? Well, yeah. what are you defining oh, the difference a, between a mechanic a and a technician? A mechanic is an old school type um, work on bike and do anything. Um, and a technician is, uh, I mean, I'm probably going to get shot down for this, but somebody who's able to diagnose what a problem is and work out what the next part, the, the replacement part is that needs plugging in. I always think of it as the mechanic will take that handlebar switch off that is no longer working. He'll take it apart and he'll fix it. Technician mm-hmm. say it doesn't work and he'll replace it. Yeah. And, and, and that's yeah. what, that's what the, everything is yeah. nowadays. Everything is replace it. I mean, you know, we're not pulling things apart. We're not rebuilding carburetors. We're not, oh, well, maybe a carburetor, but we're not, we're not yeah. rebuilding a fuel injector, for instance. We're not rebuilding a pump. We're not rebuilding a switch for that matter, because mostly they can't even be rebuilt. They're not built to come apart. Um, I'm not sure as that makes a difference though for, for technology nowadays, because if you don't know how to use a, you know, a, a computer analyzer and, and a scope, you're not going to be working on a, mo- a modern motorcycle. I wouldn't think not for anything serious. Yeah. It's an electronic no. problem of any kind. Yeah, for sure. Straight mechanical. Well, it's not that hard, but electronics or anything to do with it. Yeah. You've got to have the scope for most bikes. Sure. I mean, you know, old school is you went, you had a, a tester with you. You, you can, might, you might have your really advanced, you have a multimeter or you might just have a light tester, you know, and you're testing for power on a circuit to figure out what's wrong with your bike. Well, nowadays that's not the case. I mean, we're talking signals that are sent down bikes and, and low voltage. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a completely new world out there now. But it's a different, it's a, it's a, awful, awful strange, strange thing that's happening. On one end, the bikes are getting super, because 99% of the people ride them in the country where it's supported, like the US or UK, whatever. But now countries like Colombia and South Africa and these countries are getting those bikes as well, and they have to get educated or the, or the dealerships have to get educated to replace them. So it is there, but the breed of people that's traveling with bikes around the world, there is a little bit of a problem because we tend to 
anchor back to the older bikes because we know how easier easier it is to fix and a normal mechanic in a small town can probably help you out a little bit if, if something goes wrong. But the, the moment they get a new 1250 BMW, it's basically impossible. It's not going to happen. But, so there's, there's two things happening here. There's, on the one hand, we do get them and they can sort them out in the US or in, wherever they are. But the moment you want to take that bike around the world, now there's complications. Mm. Not all the countries have that technology or we use that bikes or have them in, in their countries for, for use. But the thing, technology does come around because even if you look on YouTube right now for problems with uh, motorcycles, you know, with different issues that people have with them, you will find people showing you how to test this and how to test that and how to replace this. We do sort of get used to the technology and, and move on from there. So I suspect, and this is just my, my you know, off the cuff prediction is that I think that, you know, when in the future, when you ride into a small village and have a problem with your, your 1250 or whatever, the computer problem, you're going to find some person on the corner, just like you did before, only they're going to be able to swap computers say, no, 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 I can handle this, you know, swap a computer, yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, that will probably happen at least some degree of that. Well, um, uh, I spoke to uh, the, the owner of Triumph South Africa the other day, and they've closed down a lot of the dealerships because of demand. But he said that the electronics on, on the motorcycles nowadays are, are really good and they, they're dependable. Well, some of them are not in some brands, but the majority of them, the, the electronics is really, really good. Even the, the canvas system, when the 12 round came out of the canvas system, people were, were going, they, they were losing their stuff completely because, I mean, this electronics. I mean, what is going to happen to the bikes? And now it's, what, it's all these years later and the 12 hours are still going and the canvas is still going and you, you never, you very rarely hear about the problems on, on them electronically. You, you, you get problems with mechanical stuff, but very rarely you hear problems with fuel injection. I mean, when else if you have to, if anybody had problems with fuel oh, injection? Yeah, I mean, the most you hear about that is a I fuel think, pump. Yeah. You guys are making a really good point here. I mean, there was a time when the um, everybody believed the world was flat. Nobody would go to the edge of where they thought <laughs> yeah. it was. And what exactly are you saying? Sam? You're, you're trying to say you're one of these people around people, right? I get it. I get it. <laughs> Do you know it, that um, takes me back to a comment that we were talking about just um, just now about um, canoes and and so on and um, going over waterfalls. I saw a cartoon the other day with a picture of um, a whole bunch of canoes on the edge of Niagara Falls. And the caption was um, words to the effect of a flat earth society find that it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so Michelle, I wanted to, to get back to the solo traveler thing. Michelle, I wanted to ask when you're traveling solo, mm -hmm. were there things that you would have missed without technology? Using and I'm not talking about like a spot or something like that, and I'm certainly not talking about bike. Well, even bike, uh, yeah, even bike technology. But were there things that you would have missed aside from the the spot? I think there are places that I would choose maybe not to go, or I wouldn't take the risk. Um, and not that they're so risky. I don't even know how. To, I'm I'm trying to think of an example. The last place that I went solo um, out of the country would have been Baja. And that, um, I went out and did some wild camping at a couple of places that I probably would not have done without having uh, the satellite tracker, the mm. beacon, so that I knew that I could ask for help if I needed it. How about for research? You know, you so see you're, 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 you're heading along, you've got a route, whatever, maybe when you're in South America or different times, but 
mm-hmm. at any time. How about for research? Has there been times where you have researched and found something that, I mean, there must've been tons of them or maybe the other way around, you don't miss something because you didn't do the research. Both ways for sure. Um, and I think that's how I learned to do more research because I don't want to miss something mm-hmm. um, and look back on it. I certainly had that, you know, traveling through the Americas in the last eight, 10 years, there've been times that I've come home and thought, oh my gosh, I just saw a photo of this beautiful place. And I was probably 20 miles from there. Didn't even know about it when I was there. Um, yeah, but there are places that I've added to my route, places that, um, you know, I've, I've chosen to go to and kind of arranged my route around it specifically because of the research that I do. So, and I, and I'm a believer in, you know, taking everything with a grain of salt. There's so much information out there and you kind of have to pick and choose. So I found a couple of blogs or resources or Facebook groups, um, obviously conversations on Horizons Unlimited, where I feel comfortable asking people. And you start to kind of, you know, develop an intuition or develop some knowledge and comfort level as to, you know, where the, where the truth lies. Usually there's, you know, some opinions on either end of the spectrum, whether a place is safe to go or whether, you know, something is worth the the ride or worth the journey, adding it to your, your to-do list. Um, then over time, just with, I, I find that even though there's tons of information to sift through, it's helpful because all of those things help me hopefully make a more informed decision about where I'm going to go and what I add to, uh, to my route. The, your thought on, on research is, is interesting. And I'm wondering if it's something that can be for everyone for, cause we all have our, our ideas of how we do our research and how we find trusted sources. I'm wondering if, if this can be something that can be put out there for other people who will listen to this that um, will help them figure out, because I think that is a big problem on the internet nowadays. There is so much information and a lot of it is, um, well, questionable, let's just say, you know, that at at the least. How do you determine what is a quality source to maybe a not so good source? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I I, I think it comes down to what's between your ears, to be quite honest with you. What's that? You you look at, (laughs) well, some of (laughs) Sorry. A few others, exactly. a bit more than what I have. But um, you think about it, you look at a government website about um, travelling to um, different countries and they'll just say, don't go there. Like you look at the Australian government warnings for Colombia, don't go there. You know, it's dangerous. Rubbish, absolute rubbish. When you go there, you have a great time and the people are really good. So you just got to assess what's um, what the information is that's coming in. And it's up to you to determine that risk. And I think um, technology, particularly for a solar traveller, is great. But don't ignore the other stuff like talking to the locals, talking to people, um, working out what's good to see. You know, that's great for um, pre-research as we're just discussing. But we did that with the Lonely Planet guidebooks too. And, you know, it's just another source um, to, to inform you about what you want to do, what you want to see. And as far as technology on bikes go, I, I agree with everything that Magnus has said. You know, you, it's usable. It's great for you. But, um, you know, it's it doesn't depreciate from what the adventure is in any way, shape or form. It can enhance it. So, uh, yeah, it's just another source. That's all. But yet you hear of people religiously following their, their GPS and ending up, 
um, drowning themselves in the bloody river or, you know, going through a canal in um, in the back blocks of the UK. I think we've seen a vision of that, Sam, you know, people just mm-hmm. driving on GPS and all of a sudden they're in a, in a canal, you know. That's, that is just like, I, I don't quite get that. You know, I hear these stories and, and, and I remember a story about a couple that, that went down a road and, and they ended up, it was tragic in the wintertime and one of them died. It's horrible. But I mean, when you hear people driving off into a canal, I'm not sure where the disconnect is. What do you do? Just keep staring at your screen and going, no, it says go ahead. I see the wall yeah. or I see the water, but I'm supposed to go ahead. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. You go around a corner and all of a sudden it's just there. <laughs> and the other thing with technology <laughs> jumping up is um, uh, I've just had some mates come back from the the, the, the um, top of Australia, the, the, the Cape, and the number of um, four-wheel drives that got drowned, their electronics got drowned, there's one particular place where you, you're going into water over the bonnet and stuff like that. And... Um, uh, these these things can't handle it. Uh, water gets into the computer systems. That's it. Bang! It's gone. It's got to be towed out or left on the side of the road. And, that's unusual uh, because usually the, all the systems are potted nowadays, so they're completely sealed. Well, well, apparently not. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I guess I, there's always a chance, right? There's always always flukes, but for the most part, I mean, I've I've driven vehicles regularly when I was younger. And these are vehicles with computers in them, um, right up where there's water coming up to the bottom of the windshield and swirling around. I used to have a bilge pump in the cab just for that reason, yeah, but never sure. a computer issue. And this, this one truck that I took into a lot of that, it was a Toyota pickup. It had a computer system in it, but never an issue. Well, that's, 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 that's good. But he's, he's told me about, there was three vehicles that they saw that had those problems. Oh, so, wow. I don't know. So maybe know. in Australia, you guys don't build your vehicles as, as good, I guess. Oh, the, the roads might be. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, point taken. Hey, Brian, I want to say, because you mentioned something in there about, about government. You said, you know, the government site is rubbish. Do you think that, that the government is always out to lunch? Do you think that they never uh, have I, a valid point? I think they're, they're ultra, ultra, ultra cautious um, to the mm-hmm. extent that um, they, they, will, they will go to that point. So um, people that uh, are a little bit more adventurous um, either ignore them completely and people that are ultra-cautious will listen to them um, and and follow their advice to the letter of the law. But uh, I think a lot of this is, is a lot of this is down to, um, you know, you hear some people who say, well, um, yeah, I check Google. Well, yeah. hang on a minute, but you, how many sites on Google did you check? Yeah. So, for example, um, you, you would check the, the British Foreign Office site, you would check the CIA, you would check the Australian government site. Um, and between those three, you could tend to work out what was wrong. The risk for, for travellers, though, is that when one of those, well, in my case, the, the British Foreign Office, when that said, um, under no circumstances, go to this country, um, your travel insurance was no longer valid for, for anything mm. that you decided to That's go to there. So there was, it was a real gamble. So it's it's um, it's risk versus reward, isn't it? How much risk do you want mm-hmm. to take? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think the important thing to realize what the audience is, these government sites are all thinking of your average person going for a holiday, jumping on an airplane, going somewhere interesting, sitting on the beach or whatever. And that's kind of the audience they're aiming for. They're not looking for adventurous travelers who've had some experience exactly. traveling, going somewhere mm-hmm. interesting, somewhere that's fun. The it's the average schmuck 
whose yeah. exciting vacation is <laughs> sitting on the beach, getting their beer delivered or their wine, their wine with, uh, you know, the, the, the umbrella in it delivered to them. That's a bit an exciting vacation. Grant, yeah. what is it with you lately? Did you got to hold back a little bit. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, I quite fancy a, 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 pool, a holiday by the pool in Ghana. I could, I could do that. <laughs> Ghana, yeah, right. It sounds nice. <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend once whose only vacation he would ever take was get picked up at the airport, taken to the hotel, sit beside the pool, watch the girls and have drinks delivered on a regular basis. That was it. He would not do and had no interest in anything further. Beach? Why would I go to the beach? It's, it's sandy and dirty and thick, <laughs> and they don't deliver your beer on time. You know, It's just what kind of a person well, you are know, you? Grant, it's a good thing there's people like for. that. Otherwise, they would all be on the backs of motorcycles, congesting Amen. every yeah. spot that everybody wanted to go. And I cheered them on. <laughs> That's exactly what I want to come to is that there's technology and it's good to get for, for solo travelers, what Michelle is mentioning, but we've been struggling with a bit of a conundrum, which it's a debate on its all its own, is that you, you you get into a small little place, because of technology, you go find the out-of-the-way places. And then five years later, maybe you return to a place and it's one hell of, all of an Instagram thing that's now happened. And the one thing about technology is that yes, it keeps a lot of people. If you if you take Overlander for a, for a uh, as an example, go into it and you'll see the the line that most people follow that they travel, and there's very few pins off the lines. And then you think, about, well, maybe there's nothing to see there. Well, no. If you go in there, maybe there is a lot of stuff to see, but a lot of people just don't go there. So technology is also working on the other way around. That for people like us that do want to go see really out of the turn naughty and these guys want to go see out of the places, you can also use it to that effect that you can sort of safely go into other places where they normally don't people go and well, now here's the problem. If you go there, you're going to obviously tell people about it very excitedly that, hey, you found this place. It's beautiful. Please go have a look at it. Five years later, boof. <laughs> but, but isn't <laughs> that the Lonely Planet just in, in, not in print lonely online? Planet syndrome. It's that the same be, thing. Uh, planet syndrome, absolutely. Yeah. We used to have that and discuss it on but a regular it, basis. Right, but it's far more powerful. Yeah. It's, it, it, oh, it, yes. it's ubiquitous. So the thing is, it's not like Lonely Planet did a certain amount of what I would call, say, damage to our spots. <laughs> you know, you like to go. Yeah. Um, but this is this is so much worse. And, and the problem is, it never goes away once it's online, it's posted. And we, we've sort of talked about this before about um, in, in particular, there, there's some apps that have you, you know, post your, your, any sort of spot you find to sleep and people will do this. And the thing is, these places have been used for years. They'll handle the odd person going in, but they won't handle a crowd. And that crowd is, is what ends up destroying a lot of spots for it. So it's a tough thing. The, the only thing that I can see with this is that as we go forward, and we're starting to see it now with a lot of things, there's so much on the internet that it creates a certain level of noise and things get lost in the noise. And, it, and it's tough mm-hmm. to find a lot of things. So I don't know if that's going to be the balance. I'm not sure. That's part of why we did uh, destinations on the website. We wanted that for people, for motorcycle travelers places that they found interesting that aren't necessarily on Google or um, on the popular travel sites. Some are a little different. That's our goal with that. 
Excellent. Um, as far as uh, solo travelers, have, have you guys, been, or are you aware of any, um, now I don't want to go through and list them all, of course, because there's, there's t- tons that I had to look around to see what was there, but for um, apps for solo travelers, are there apps or systems that um, can particularly help a solo traveler? Tinder. Dating solo. Yeah, Tinder. <laughs> Did you say Tinder? Oh, I thought that's Do you know that's what's funny is when I was doing my uh, my research for that, I re- I found I came across there's an app for meeting up with other single people while you're traveling. So if you're looking to, you know, make a close friend for a night. Mm-hmm. I use a Facebook group called Girls Love Travel. And uh, that's just a way to connect with women in a certain part of the world, wherever you're at, even if it's just online, not necessarily in person. But uh, if you're traveling, say, to Morocco and you're asking about where to shop, where to stay, if it's safe to go out at night, how to dress appropriately for certain areas, um, it's a nice resource to meet with local women who live in that part of the world. And there's, I don't even remember how many millions of women on it, but it is dedicated specifically to women. So, um, that's been a kind of a nice resource and a touch point for traveling overseas and getting information. That's just for women. Yes. Uh, obviously. Right. Obviously. Yeah. Yep. The <laughs> men with yashmaks and ponytails managed to get on there. Sorry, Sam, it's not for you. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Women need that kind of um, thing uh, or, or Facebook group to, you know, it's good for them. Men just supposed to go to bars, sit there and do their thing. You know, just <laughs> let you talk stuff out. So says Mickness. Right. <laughs> I mean, the social media sites and so on, they, they, they can really enhance um, a traveler's experiences by linking up with local people that you've, you've connected with and all that sort of stuff. And you can find things behind the scenes that you would never would have done. One of the risks of an overlander is that um, they can end up traveling across the surface of the countries that they're going through and never really get in underneath the skin of places and making local connections uh, in advance and with a, a loose, well, I'll be there sometime in September. Uh, rather than I'm going to be there on the X particular date, because of course that means he's just riding on past all the other opportunities. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's a fantastic thing because you know these connections that you make, they do give you the uh, the chance to to see what family life is and to, to pick the brains of the local person as to you know their favourite places and um, find out what the local foods are, the local delicacies that aren't necessarily written about um, in uh, online or on a, a general guidebook. I think it's a, it's an excellent asset to overlanders. What do you, as far as apps, so I'll just throw this out there. The, the one that, that came to my mind was Audible. It's not a social app, obviously, but if you're traveling by yourself, it certainly gives you time to listen to some books. Mm-hmm. And the other one would be Kobo or Kindle or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, are there, are there any, um, are there any other pieces of technology that helps with solo, solo travel that you guys can think of? Um, I'd be sitting at Starbucks waiting for people to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Some of that. (laughs) There are great apps around that um, can introduce you to house sitting opportunities and pet sitting and things like that. And they always add um, a real bonus to to travel. For example, I ended up um, house sitting a millionaire's house um, in Cape Town, looking out over, over the sea. And that was absolutely lovely. I would never have found about it. Um, Can you share that information? It was your house. (laughs) (laughs) It 
was a millionaire's I, house magnet. We didn't realize now you and I must get together. There are all sorts of um, apps and so on around like that that just add a, another um, possibility um, to a journey now. Well, Rene, the Canadian, the, our friend um, um, that, that's got them, well, I'm, I'm not, okay, he's got a touring company, but he traveled around the world and he's an introvert and he used to tell me that he had to go out at night and go sit in other bars or places or restaurants and, and talk to people because at that stage, uh, the forums only started, was, it was way pre-2000 pre and, and forums only started, so you, you, and, and there was no internet in Africa, for example, or South so you had to go and talk to people. <laughs> no other, if you wanted to meet people, you had to talk to them. You actually get out. You, you know, it was like meet space. You know, face them. So I, I think just getting down to, to normal, talking to people might also just, just help a bit. Mm, that's true. Well, I mean, this is something where some social media is a real danger, isn't it? Because, that's what I was going to say. Um, people, people arrive at their destination and what's the first thing they do? They sit and spend the next three hours answering messages on Facebook and posting pictures and all that sort of stuff and never go out and sit in the bars. And that is where the local characters are found. So I guess the advice for the solo traveler would be, yes, use the technology, but sort of mix it with, um, mm. with the old face-to-face -face contacts. You know, it's funny because you guys, uh, somebody mentioned already about um, taking local advice and we've talked many times about how, you know, the people in this town will tell you or this country will tell you the next country is the worst country ever and, and how you can get yourself in trouble. I'm reading a book that was written back in the, in the 60s and the, the people in there, that's one thing they discover is that they, they've learned very quickly that one community tells you how bad the next community is. It, it's so strange. This is such a universal story that you hear just around the world. Afraid of somebody else somebody different, somebody we don't know. They're neighbors. Simple as that. Yeah. Doesn't Usually matter. they're neighbors. We don't know yeah. them. We don't know them. Therefore, they're not safe. Mm -hmm. Maybe what it is, is we know them just enough to know a little bit about them. And that's what makes us scared. It's, it's strange. I wonder whether some of it goes back to, to the, the mists of time. For example, I stayed in a, a, a very small village in um, the Tanzanian desert. And the guy spent um, the next days with sign language and drawings in the sand telling me about battles with neighboring tribes and things like that. And they were still, yeah, you don't want to go that way. Mm -hmm. sure. so maybe it just yeah. delves all, all the way back into that. Yeah, it's tribal. Yeah. They're yeah, not that, us. Mm. Therefore, they're dangerous. It's as simple as that. That's, that's, that's right. We were traveling through Iran, heading towards Balm, and we'd left one village and got to another village. And this, this guy said, where did you come from? And we told him, I can't remember the name of the village now, and he said, oh, they're so dangerous people, you are lucky to survive. And we found them perfect and never a problem. Mm -hmm. yep. but, but you're right, Sam, it, it comes back to those old traditional clansman-type fights that they used to have and probably still go on to this day in certain places of the world. Mm -hmm. Um. Any other uh, any other tips for for solo travel and, and technology? Anything that uh, somebody wanted to say? I've got a couple of things I wanted to mention, just for um, little gadgets that I find that I I have not tried myself, but I have a couple of friends who have. I have a friend that is a um, solo female traveler, travels with a a portable door alarm. She said she spent I think it was fifteen or twenty dollars U.S. on it, and so you actually just put it. 
in front of a door to your room. And if someone comes into your room during the night, it sounds an alarm, hopefully normally enough to scare someone off, um, but also to wake you. And I, I ha- again, haven't tried it myself, but I find that interesting and I might mm-hmm. try one out for yeah, that kind smart. of price. Yeah. And the other thing that I um, actually just recently ordered was some air tags to put on things in case something goes missing or gets stolen um, just to keep track of things. But again, I haven't actually tried those yet. I've just ordered some. The they're air like tags, little, sorry, I was just going to mention the air tags that someone was just telling me, and I, I just can't remember who it was just recently. It was an interview I did. They said they put air tags on their motorcycles and tracked them all the way from Canada, the US, I think to the UK, something like that. And they could see that they were in customs and where they went and everything. So they worked quite well. <laughs> that wasn't my dog. Who's dog's that? It was mine. Sorry. You have a dog? <laughs> well, I do at the moment. That's a, a whole other story, but yeah. The sorry dog sounds that. aggravated, Michelle. It wants something. It's <laughs> it's clearly trying to communicate with you and you're ignoring it. I hear that aggravation. No, I think he was wholeheartedly agreeing that air tags are a great way to track a oh, bike. I think he just yeah. said yes. I didn't realize he was <laughs> following <laughs> along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. You said, so door alarm, air tags, what else? Uh, no, those were the two things that uh, are new kind of techie gadgets that I'm excited to try out. Mm. Sounds good to me. The door alarm thing, I, I think I've, I've seen those many years ago, and this was probably, you know, be very rudimentary for, for today's standards, but it had a little tab that you um, you hooked into the top of the door and, the, and, and you sort of, it held the switch open, I guess, because it was jammed between the door and the frame. It was as simple as that. And then just by pushing the door open, because you're on the inside, you stick it in there and by somebody opening the door, then it goes off. And I, I think that's great. That, that, in particular, I mean, if you're, you're traveling solo. Gee, yeah. because I am so old school t- sometimes. This is this is shocking. Um, if I was staying in a really dodgy hotel, then um, after I'd eaten dinner, if it was something in a tin can, I'd just hang the tin can on the door on the door with a couple of pebbles in it. That's oh, clever. It works. Right. And I thought you were going to say something about tying I, a string to your toe or something like that. Just... <laughs> oh, no, I can't be honest with that. I'd, I'd get out and run to the loo in the middle of the night and, and trip over. That'd be an ignominious <laughs> end to it. Yeah. Michelle, when you're when you're solo traveling, you're camping somewhere. Do you worry about your bike at all? Do you do anything to to sort of protect that or make it so that you know if somebody comes around? No, I I um I actually am pretty. <laughs> this sounds really bad. I'm pretty when I'm camping. I'm usually next to my bike, and I have not actually for a couple of years now used used a disc lock. I shouldn't be advertising this. This is terrible. Um, but I do carry a disc lock. I can use, of course, like the, the steering column lock. Um, no, I'm usually at night. I'm just worried about me. <laughs> I, I don't care so much about my stuff. I mean, I, I'm really looking out for me. That poor KLR. I know, right? <laughs> Let him take it. And, and just to be here. clear here, Michelle did say she does carry that disc lock and that could be used at any time. So don't That's even right. try Thank it. you. <laughs> Yeah, we, we use we use a motion sensor uh, on our motorbikes. So in the beginning, we would just buy the one that you would use for your laptop, and we would actually tie that to the motorcycle. So if there's any movement, one you can use it for that, and I suppose you can use it in a hotel room as well. You know, protect your laptop as well as put it around the doorknob or whatever. But uh, we found that little motion sensors can be quite handy. Mm, we had a little bit of a problem with that and have a completely different opinion. 
we discovered in Central America that the kids want to have a look at your bike and they'll sort of half climb on it and play with it. And the alarm goes off. And then mm-hmm. crazy gringo comes running down, chases them away, thieves. And then, the guy and then they <laughs> come up and they, they give it another jiggle to watch the crazy gringo come running yeah. down. It was hilarious. You forgot the magic trick. The magic trick is always to cover your motorcycle with some cloth or so, because Mm -hmm. then it disappears. And then if you add the most motion sensor, it works. Yeah. Well, this was 1987, so we hadn't figured that out yet. Yeah, we do like the idea of having a bike cover. That that makes an awful lot of sense. Oh, no doubt. I'm interested with a bike cover for for over 20 odd years, but you know that's that's the best security you can get. But I think I've related the story before. We met a guy um, when we were travelling through Russia and he separated from his mates to go back to Europe. And he was camping, I think it was in Bulgaria, just camping in a campground uh, and he had his all his gear in his bike, his 1200GS, and, um, and we got out of his tent in the morning. The bike was gone. He'd lost everything and it was right next to him. Wow. And, um, he had to go to the police to um, they lend him money and get a passport. He had nothing. He had his passport, his money, everything in the panniers. But they'd obviously picked the bike up and just taken off with it. So, oh. just, yeah, I, I like the idea of those um, uh, air things, um, Michelle. I, I said to Shirley before she left because leaving um, luggage is getting lost all over the world. I said, why don't you put one of those air tags in your, in your bag? You can track it that way, find out where it is. So you can do the same with the bike quite easily. There was a guy. There was a guy um, who was in Tokyo that we know who um, he, um, he was waiting at the carousel. His bag didn't came off, so he just got on his phone and found out that his bag was actually in Singapore. So he goes to the counter and says, "You unloaded my bag in Singapore. Get it to me now." You know. <laughs> so yeah, and that worked. Bike. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's good. Gee, worse. One Just going back to bike covers for a minute. Um, last night, uh, so I'm, I'm staying in a you know fairly dodgy motel. It was cheap, cheap as I could find. But uh, the bonus is my bike's parked immediately outside in the car parking area. And at about three o'clock this morning, there was this horrendous crash from the front of my room. And I tell you, what, I nearly slipped a disc leaping out of bed and sort of throwing myself towards the window. And the bike was there, and the whole world was asleep out there, and then I realised that the, the rig that I'd set up with my tent poles to hang my washing on um, had collapsed. Into the <laughs> that, that would be the one that's hanging over the heater to dry out your tent. Would that be it, Sam? saw that? Yeah, it was an air conditioning, nice, so no heat out of it. But, yeah, that was the one that was in the photo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll um, we'll wrap this up here. We'll take a, just a very quick break. We're going to come back and talk about travel rhythms. So um, this episode is, suppress- is supported by Fresh Tracks, freshtracks.co.uk. They've been around since the 90s and they work with companies to uh, or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills through team building exercises. And they work with a lot of companies, uh, a lot of large companies like Comic Relief and Yahoo and Mars and Pfizer companies like that. So have a look at freshtracks.co.uk and thank you very much, Fresh Tracks. Great to have you supporting Adventure Rider Radio Raw. So travel rhythm. 
So we, we understand that there's seasons, of course, that we want to travel in. We've talked about this before. You know, you, you've got to hit a certain, you know, depending where you're going, that there's going to be a season, very likely, um, that you want to hit. But there's also rhythms like getting up in the morning. I know we've talked before about, um, you know, how long you travel before you fall into a rhythm, before you fall into your travel rhythm, and, and also in a larger rhythm. So, so are you traveling for, you know, a couple of weeks, take time off? Somebody was just telling me, uh, actually, it was... Um, Jess and Greg Stone, who are traveling the, the world with a dog on the back of their motorcycle. And they have a travel rhythm because they're working on the road. They travel, I think it is, they travel hard for four days. And I, I say hard, not necessarily covering distance, but that's their focus. And then they spend three days uh, working on their business because they have a business they run from the road. So that's a rhythm as well, which I thought that was kind of interesting and a good way to do it, have sort of a set time that you're traveling and stopping. So what about you guys? What's your, what's your travel rhythm? Michelle, let's start with you. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's move I think on. It no, no, no. I think <laughs> it depends very much on how far into the trip I am, w- what's going on and where I'm riding. Um, so for me, I like to ride five to six days a week and then have a day off to do admin, which for me includes stocking up on groceries, doing a bit of laundry, um, you know, correspondence, blogging, photo editing, those kinds of things. And the longer that I'm on the road, the more often and probably longer I like to take extended breaks. So maybe every three months, I like to take a full week to 10 days off um, from traveling, rest up, um, also kind of take a little bit of time to go hiking or do some physical activity that gives me a little cardio exercise. So I try and fit that into my one day a week off the bike. Um, but try and build a little bit more extended time every three months or so into, into my routine, if that makes sense. Is that fairly rigid that you have the, the five, six day thing? And no, the, no, it's not. No, it's, it, it's really flexible and that's just kind of a general rule. So it depends on, you know, what's, what's up ahead for me. It, traveling, for example, like in South America, if I knew I was going to be wild camping quite a bit, I might take a couple of extra days in a hostel to, to rest and to catch up on laundry and really kind of prep. So stock up on groceries in my pantry for the bike and then prepare for say a week or so of wild camping where I knew I was going to be away from water supplies, grocery stores, things like that. Um, So yeah, it just, it depends on kind of what's ahead on the horizon as far as the road and uh, you know, what the next next town would be if that's a couple days right away or a week's right away. When you're in Patagonia, places with good Wi-Fi and supplies are a little fewer and further between than they are when you're traveling, say, in Central America, where you're crossing borders regularly and and you're um, just in a a different environment. Mm. Elspie, how about you? I think for for me and Mechnas, we we try and avoid routines, but uh, rightfully said, you do get into a rhythm of of travel. And Michelle is quite correct. It depends on what country we're traveling. Um, so for for us, we sort of go with the flow. If we're in an area that's gonna we're gonna do a lot of remote traveling, we will fit in a couple of days, and after that, we we would need to just take a day or two to do admin follow-up on business. Uh, but yeah, I think we try and go with the flow, if that makes sense. Well, how do you mean go with the flow? 
Well, it depends if, um, it, like Michelle said, you know, if you're, if, so let's say in, in Africa, for example, some of the places you, there's nothing else but moving every day. So you get into the rhythm of move, 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 move. And then maybe you get into a place where, like, where there's good Wi Fi. There's good Wi Fi and, and or there's, there's nicer places to stay. So you start to slow down a little bit, maybe stay three days at a place and five days at a place versus having to move every single day. And we don't, we're not really that rigid, rigid on stuff also. We, we sort of see what, how things go. So if, if some countries are really nice to stay in, we, we sort of slow down way more than what we'll do other, other type of countries. But the rhythm, and, and then it also depends. Some places you really want to, to move every single day and go see stuff and you, you get into an adventure type of, type of thing. So then you move and like Michelle said, you did maybe take a week off if we, we book an Airbnb and hammer everything through. Move, uh, um, get photos done, get business done, um, recoup a bit and by the, by the next Sunday you all start itching, you want to get moving again. So yeah. you, know, you, you do the planning, you get going again. Mm-hmm. And, and like it is with travel, you, you think you plan something and it works out differently because you didn't realize that the, the country the way they do things are different or so, and and all of us keep flexibility if you're a traveler. So, um, yeah. But it's also, you know, it's a funny thing, but I can't now going back to Uruguay, for example, I can't get on the bike and by the second day I'm, my ass is stuck to the seat and I feel it. It takes me, takes me a week to start to settle into the whole thing again, you know, just to, Sort of getting a rhythm of where you, where you, where's my cell phone in my pocket, and where did I pack this, and where's that, and where did else be packed? Yeah, where did she pack it? You know that one. What did I leave behind? So <laughs> it's, it's a different um, uh, 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 rhythm you have to get into. Brian, how about you? I agree with everything that's been said. I, I think um, the, the rhythm of the road. Um, it, if people that over plan, the rhythm of the road gets them in the end. They they find out, you know, well, I'm not going to do 500 k's every day. Um, it's too much, or I'm missing out on this and that. On that, and uh, I think um, the rhythm of the road really does set the agenda for you. Um, and I, I was just listening to Magnus thinking about getting bike fit. If you've been off the bike for a little while. You know, your neck might start to ache because you haven't had the helmet on or your arm starts to ache a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes time for your body to get used to the road as well. And um, in in Australia, you, um, tra- particularly travelling up north, I love getting up with the dawn, getting the bike ready and just going and uh, being finished by about 2 or 3 in the afternoon at the latest to avoid the heat of the day, find somewhere nice and cool, be it under a tree or in a bar somewhere in, one, in the outback, you know what it's like. Um, to me, that's the rhythm of the road. And you, you'll get to a point where, yeah, I like, we're going to stay here. Well, the last trip I did around Australia uh, last year was um, with a few mates and um, we all found our own rhythm. Um, some wanted to leave early, some wanted to leave later, but we all met up at, this, uh, at, the, at our uh, predetermined um, destination that day. And when we got over to Broome in Western Australia, we decided, yeah, we're going to stay here a couple of extra days. So that's the rhythm of the road. It's sort of found you out in the end. Um, um, that's just my thoughts on it. I think that um, you will find your own way eventually. 
So you're and, saying and very trip- random. You, you're yeah, not finding no. that there's a natural rhythm there that you're stopping once a week um, or something like that? No, no, I, I, I don't. I don't um, go countenance to that at all. I think you just find your way eventually. And uh, Magnus and Elspie were talking about, you know, you get to a nice place, you want to stay or you've got things to do. Um, and Michelle talking about getting off the bike for a week, and walking around. That's, that's just how, how it plans out for you. But I don't think there's any hard and fast rule to it. Um, when we first started travelling, um, Cheryl had to have everything booked. And I think I've discussed this before. In the end, I sat her down and said, no, nah, I'm not travelling like that. And it took her probably about a week to get over the apprehension of not having anywhere to stay that next night or whatever. But eventually, um, she got into that rhythm and really enjoyed it. So, you know, the road dictates to what you do. Sam, how about you? What's What's your rhythm like? But, um, I think Brian, I think um, you and Shirley and I would travel really well together because our routine is also getting up in the morning um, really early. As soon as the sun's shining, um, we're up. We love it um, in the dawn. The light's amazing. And if we're in hot countries, then it's cooler to take the tent down and get the gear strapped on and in all of that sort of stuff. And I just yeah. love the low light um, in, in the mornings. You just see the, the, the scenery so beautifully. Um, and also for us, it means that we've got the, the whole day stretching in front of us, which is just fantastic because then it means that we've got the opportunity to, to take side turnings and opportunities. I've got quite a few friends who almost never leave wherever they're staying, camping or, or motel, um, before 11.30 in the day. And I'm just thinking, wow, you know, we've, in some places, we've already been on the road and exploring and experiencing for four hours by then. Um, but that's just us, you know, it's, it's all horses and courses. I suppose we also like to set off early because it means that if we have a breakdown or a flat, then we've got the, the whole day to play in. And I've said this before, but um, cheaper accommodation, if you haven't got somewhere already booked, then um, getting into a town in the sort of mid-afternoon um, allows you to, to have a hunt around of the, the cheaper options. We both hate riding um, after dark uh, when we're on, on a big trip and um, arriving somewhere after dark, um, that for us just sucks. Both of us have a real dislike of doing it. And we feel more vulnerable. Um, I mean, one of our key senses is only five on, on, on half cylinder. And um, after dark, the, the, the light glare from things, from, from a city or from a town, well, it just means that the, the unlit signs are too easy to miss and place names that get missed as well because they're, they're not lit we also think that um, exploring in the daylight is, is safer and, yeah, it helps the budget. But um, arriving after dark, well, it's like riding blind. Um, but um, as Michelle said, road holidays, and that's how we kind of think about them. Because every so often we'll get to a stage where um, we're just ready for a break. I guess um, we've been on what we call intake overload. So in other words, you've been traveling for a while and you're just sucking in information and sights and sounds and people and connections and challenges and everything else. And all of a sudden, we both start to feel, um, yeah, a little bit as if we're, we're overloaded. So um, when that happens, we, st- we find that we start to focus on getting from A to B instead of focusing on what's between A and B. And when that starts to happen to us, then we know it's time for um, um, a road holiday. And to a certain extent, there's a bit of mental exhaustion going on with that is, you know, that into the intake overload um, side of things. Um, we've we've um, had some magic places where we've had 
road holidays. When I was um, in the early days on on the trip, um, I road holidayed on Mission Beach in Australia. I've been working on a mango plantation, and it's hot, sweaty work. But if you if you've worked hard, then it's a great way to earn money. Once the pick was done, then we headed straight for the beach. There were ten of us pickers and the processing crew. We were all backpackers and bums. And uh, we headed for the beach and camped amongst the trees along the edge of the beach. That was white sand, turquoise sea, absolutely idyllic. And we spent the next week just swimming and drinking beer and um, having barbecues and drinking wine and campfire of driftwood. And one of the guys was a juggler. And um, when the the sun went down, he'd just get out there and he'd be um, juggling fire clubs. And just fantastic. All you could hear was the the whoosh of the, the clubs going round and the sound of the waves rolling in. Just, just spectacular. Another place I had um, a road holiday was in um, the, the small town of Maasai in northwestern Thailand. It's right close to the border with Burma. And the guidebooks and other people said to me, well, it's a small town, um, there's a big trading market, but there's nothing else really there. So, of course, that piqued my interest because quite often when um, you talk to other people, then they'll say, well, there's nothing much there. And that's where I go wandering the back streets and things like that. And I found all sorts of fascination there. I ended up taking five days off um, from the road because I met a guy who was smuggling old British bikes out of Burma into Thailand. And he was basically smuggling them across the river. And then once he got them into Thailand, completely undocumented and silent in the middle of the night, um, he and a couple of mates were renovating them as best as possible and then shipping them for sale overseas. And these guys, I mean, BSAs, Nortons, aerials and all sorts of things. And um, they were making some absolute magic money out of doing this. But yeah, sometimes um, the road holidays, just you you, you luck out and you find somewhere that's just fantastic. And you end up with an in-depth story rather than uh, a brief break for a couple of nights. So yeah, that's part of our road rhythm. Grant, you're the only one we haven't heard from you so (laughs) far. Yeah. um, I I don't disagree with anything that's been said so far. And I think what stands out for me is that everybody has their own rhythm and what works for them. Um, we have the, the famous, or is it infamous, Johnson crack of noon start. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes. You mean it doesn't matter when the sun rises, it doesn't matter, you're getting up at noon no matter what. Amen to that. No, we're on the road. <laughs> Unless it's being a little bit later, in which case we'll have lunch and then we'll go. <laughs> and it it varies. You know, we'll do that for a while, depending on the climate. I mean, if we're in a hot, hot country, no, we'll get up early and go early for sure. Um, but if it's a milder climate or even if, especially if it's a cold climate, get up later, ride for four o'clock, five o'clock at the latest, pull into town and find some place to stay. Um, yeah, we I agree completely with um Sam's comment about riding at night, forget it. Just don't do that. That's that's bad. And arriving in a strange town after dark and trying to find accommodation, it's quite likely it's all virtually all sold out or what's left you really don't want. And I remember some places that Susan's gone into and she comes out very quickly and said, we are not staying here. Next. I think Sam is staying there right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the important thing is that you, you don't want, you want to do some planning and you want you get into a rhythm you get into a style of riding and it works for you this week next week 
And then it changes because you're in a different country, you're in a different climate, you're in a different mood, you, you're tired, you're not tired. Um, your plans will change, and that's a good thing because you're, you're adjusting for serendipity. You're learning what interests you, and you're learning to just go with the flow. Um, I'm always reminded of this couple that planned a Russia, Southeast Asia, Stan's trip, and they had pre-labeled photo albums with the dates and locations and booked every hotel on the way. Wow. Yeah, yeah you know how long that lasted, don't you? <laughs> Um, the stress of sticking to a schedule like that is exhausting. It's way worse than just everything. Well, unless you made the schedule so loose, like, you know, with so much time in between, you you could do that if you, if you give yourself way too much travel time, I guess even work. nobody does that though. Everybody travel plans in advance, too much mileage, too long, too much distance, and too little time. That is the norm. Yeah. You're, you're a genius, super duper pet traveler if you don't. Um, but but, but that even that happens, the, Grant, the that even happens on short trips. Think about it. Like if you're, sure if you're going across the country here, you, you do the same thing. <laughs> we do the same thing. If you, you sort of have it planned out and you, you know, it's like you've got this thing, you've got to stick to this schedule. We're going to have to push a little bit yep. further today because we want to make it to so-and-so. I know we always had the, the worst thing about all traveling, everything we did was we have to catch that airplane or that boat. Mm-hmm. That was the worst thing on, the, on everything. We hated that. Uh, so we would always push it out like a week extra. And then we find out that we just barely made it anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You Sounds have familiar. To familiar. So much time. Um, it's just. Yeah. So just, I think, keep in mind that flexible what works for you right now in the current conditions, and it's okay to change it, and don't plan to do too much. Slow down and take regular breaks. It's like you know, in your regular job, you work a five-day week, and then you take the weekend off. And I bet every single person here listening to this can say, yeah, and I need that weekend too. The same thing when you're traveling. Mm-hmm. Put in seven days, nine days, 10 days, 15 days straight travel on the bike. You're worn out. We had a guy that wrote after three months of traveling and he says, I don't think I can do this. I don't, I don't know how you long-term travelers do it. It's, I've been traveling for three months and I'm exhausted. I want to go home. And it turned out that he had ridden every day for three months. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you need a break. You, you've almost yeah. answered the, the next question that I had was, I was going to say, well, well, let's come up with some sort of formula that somebody could start with to find their rhythm, to find their personal rhythm. What, what would it be? Would it be travel for a few days? I mean, how would you explain it to someone uh, and anyone just speak up if, if you have a thought on this, how would you explain it to someone and they come to you and they say, I'm about to go on this trip, whatever the time doesn't matter. Well, how should I start my rhythm for travel? Because you certainly don't want to go the three months and then find out you're burned out and not understand why. I think do the, the work week, travel from no more than five days, take a couple of days off. Mm, After you've done that for a few weeks, then you can adjust as, as you need. Start with something that you're used to. Your regular rhythm of life is a five-day work week and then a weekend off. Keep it up. That makes a huge amount of sense, Grant. I like that. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Never, never, never thought about that. As you get as you get into it and you do what we do, we don't even know when the week is ending and when it's starting if you don't ask somebody. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but that's as you get into it and you adjust, yeah. things change. But you yeah. start off with something, mm. like Jim says. Where do you start? Well, it's a good place to start. Yeah. 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 One thing I'll 
say about if you if you want to travel first thing in the morning, what I always do is fuel up um, at the end of the day. So you out of where you're staying, you jump on a bike, you don't have to go looking for a petrol station, you just go and ride and you've got 100, 200 or whatever kilometres you've got um, before you pull up. So to me, that's um, – and I did break the golden rule once um, coming down Route of 40. I think I've said this before, but we pulled into a town um, – and went past the petrol station and I thought, oh, yeah, well, we're looking for somewhere to stay. We'll go and we'll fuel up in the morning. We're not going to leave too early. And, of course, coming down Route of 40 there, the um, the petrol tankers are very small and um, there wasn't any fuel in the morning. So we had to stay another day and wait for the petrol tanker to come into town to fill up the petrol bowsers, didn't we? Mm. So, you know, <clears throat> it's just one of those things. And so the golden rule is um, at the end of the day, fuel up so you're ready to go the next day. That's a, that's a good tip. And it's yeah, funny because it. what you're saying yeah. there, Brian, really plays into what everyone said up till now is that if you were on a schedule with your next night booked, you would have been hooped right there because you didn't have fuel. Yeah. You would have had to say the extra day, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. But Brian, that's a very nice, it's a very valuable thing that you just said. We've also started doing it a while back where you get into town, go fill up, bike is ready, everything is good to go. You don't start the next day with looking for fuel stations and it, it ventures an hour out of your time. You know, if you wanted to get away early, at least if you get it the, the previous day, you know you filled up for the for the next day. Yeah, the worst, I think, is that you get dressed in the morning, you're all set to go, you got your helmet on, your gloves, you're all set up, you're all buttoned up and ready to go, and then you drive a mile to the gas station and take it all off again and get the gas up and do it all over again. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. true. That is, <laughs> yeah. It's much better to do it at the end of the day. Sometimes you you found out in the, in the end of the day that there's no fuel in the place. You have to go look for cans and, and fill up out of, out of jerry cans, which is better doing it that day than doing it the next morning. Right, yeah. before yeah. you can go anywhere. Yeah. 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 A- any other things that, that comes to mind as far as that? Because then that's rhythm of travel, right? Doing that, you know, filling up as you come into the town at night. Um, are there any other habits that, that anyone has that, that are sort of fall into the rhythm of things? Basic servicing of the bike. Make sure it's ready to go in the morning check your tire pressures, make sure everything's good. Um, do your grocery shopping, if anything, that you want to take with you for the next day so that you are ready to go when you're ready to go. You don't have to mess around and run around town trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. When yeah, I do laundry thing. at night yeah. so that my laundry has the chance to over, to dry overnight. Mm, yeah. Good point. Yep. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to talk about is um, – when you go into a room, put put your stuff in somewhere that which is regular. Yeah, just near, near your pannier or or next to your bag or whatever you've got. Um, I think I've related the story about Shirley leaving her underwear on the bed, and uh, she packed really well that, that day. And when we got to the next place we were staying, she opened a bag and she left all her underwear on the bed, hadn't she? So she. <laughs> just oh no. Well, lucky you were along because she could wear yours. <laughs> That's the photograph I want to see. Oh, don't come in, don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> the, the other thing is, that, well, and it goes right along with that, is, is is the routine, isn't it? I mean, it's um, it's anytime you stay for routine. I find that like you, you know, you get into a routine of how you take your tools out of your bike to work on something and what you do afterwards. All those yeah. little routines that you develop, you really need to stick to them because the moment, I, at least for me, the yeah. moment I stray from routine is when I forget and I leave something out. 
You know, if, if I walk away before I finish the job, you get talking to somebody, set something in a different spot, all those things to me are recipes for disaster. A perfect example of that is, is um, I, I put a, a key ring on my front left belt loop. And whenever I've, uh, for, um, for my bike keys, and I've got a, a clippy thing, and whenever I've used uh, take, you know, get off the bike and locked it and walked away, then bang, the key goes straight on that. Oh, yeah. If I'm opening, lo- unlocking the panniers, unlock them, get my goods out, um, lock them again, bang, straight on there. I, I've had some really frustrating times. And um, Birgit's side of the tent is always chaos. I, I just like mine ordered because I'm too lazy to hunt around. But one of Birgit's famous questions was, Sam, you see my keys? <laughs> no, I can't be dealing with that. Far too lazy. <laughs> yeah, we have a, there's talking about routines in the in, in that. Uh, this um, Night Eyes is a brand of carabiners, but small little carabiners. I love that stuff because carabiners for everything. My wallet goes mm-hmm. into that, keys goes into that. The other thing we've we've learned to that because we've lost small little speakers everywhere is that everything goes into a small bag. And when we unpack, because you know how travelers are, you you unpack a room and it looks like you've been living there for a year. Yeah. And the day, the next morning, you start packing up, and inevitably you leave something. So everything goes in a little bag, and then the bags go into the into the duffel bag. So when you start packing, there's a little bag left. The speaker is hanging on the helmet um, again. So just take it off. Yeah, so because otherwise, you leave it. A bag for everything, and they've all got a place. So as soon as you've packed up, and you're like, oh, here's a spot, then you know you have left something out. Yeah. But that's why you, you, you're very, very right, Jim, in saying that you, you need to stick to those small little routines. Mm-hmm. Everything yep. is everything's in a bag. We have nothing loose. It's all in a colored bag, and the purple bag's got the toilet paper in it. The yellow bag's got the mozzie juice in it, and stuff like that. It's all absolutely consistent. And if there's a, a hole the size of my fist in the saddlebag when I've, it's happy, a problem. I know what belongs there. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing we do is the last person that actually packs and closes things, the other one goes and wanders around and just checks everything again. Yeah. A double yeah. check. Yeah, that's good. Always have a last look. Yeah. Yeah, we call it a sweep. Is, is what yeah. we do. And, and somebody, somebody has to do the sweep. We don't necessarily trade off that way, but but it's, we do the sweep, always the sweep. And the sweep's the last thing. The, the other thing that I find that works for us anyway mm-hmm. is staging, is what we call staging. And of course, this comes from tourism, from from doing wilderness trips. But uh, well, I'll give you that example. That, that's probably the easiest to explain. When you have a bunch of people out on a trip, you have a lot of gear to handle. And as people bring their gear down from their different camp spots, and put it in their things, making the trip back and forth to their tent spot to where they're, they're, they're loading stuff's in this case into the boats, but the, the bike's the same thing. You have all this gear going back and forth. So what we do is we say, okay, you stage it here, which means everybody brings all their stuff and stages it in one spot. And then what you do is you go back and do your sweeps. That way, you know, you haven't left anything hanging in the trees, sitting off to the side. If it's a hotel room, same thing under the edge of the bed, under the mattress, all those places where you lose the stuff and it's staged in the one spot. Then you can remove everything that's staged into whatever you're, you're putting it into. And in our case on, in this, we're, we're talking uh, about motorcycling, but in the adventure tourism, it was, it was canoes and kayaks. That's what you're loading into. And it made it so that the, the loss rate was, was virtually zero. You, you just didn't forget anything because it was, it was organized. Anything else with that? Uh, no, not for me. Sounds good to me. Okay. No. Well, we'll, uh, we'll move into plugs. And now for Mickness and Elsby, if you don't know how plugs work, plugs is just, this is your opportunity to plug something that you're doing, something that you're working on, 
and uh, it's just a it's just sort of a, a shout out or a plug spot. So what do you have? Oh yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, most of our time we've been spending in, in Cape Town making new designs and stuff for Takana, the the soft luggage and stuff that we do. So that was that's mostly why we are in, in Cape Town currently. So we've got some very nice new designs that we'll probably get out by next year early. So hopefully all goes well. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of hard work. So that's, that's Turkana gear. That's the, the company that you guys had developed on the road, which is pretty cool because you, you did this while you were traveling and you organized the whole thing. You only just returned home now to do some work on it. Yeah. So, correct, yeah, correct. yeah. so that's pretty neat. And the website is, is it, what is it? Turkanagear.com. com. Okay. Michelle, what do you have for plugs? I'm excited just to say that we're getting really close to launching um, our next Rev Sisters online motorcycle film festival. The dates for the next one, uh, it actually starts online October 28th through the 30th. So the 28th, 29th, and 30th of October, viewing online is free if you get your ticket at revsisters.com. Or if you need more time to watch the films, I think we're at something like 12 or 13 hours worth of films at this point. Um, you can buy an extended pass that allows you access to the films through November 13th. Um, again, just free tickets for anybody around the world. It's wonderful. You view the, view the films at your leisure when your schedule allows within that uh, window of viewing. So revsisters.com for tickets. Michelle, this, is this the third year of it? This is the third year. Yeah. Oh, Where does the time go? I know. That is very cool. So year <laughs> three, and so you, you're saying that's a lot of films you've got. Just it sort is. of a, I know it's going to be really tough to do, but what kind of films are on there? Like, Oh gosh, there's a little bit of everything. There's everything from bike builds to adventure travel movies to um, things about bike culture. Um, maybe we've, we've had short films in the past, for example, that were put together by different motorcycle gangs, by different groups, which I know sounds very unusual. Um, we had a film once about, um, motorcycles being used in Uganda for transporting, um, blood for patients that needed it at different places. So without revealing too many of our, our films for this year's event, I can say that in past years, we've just had a really broad spectrum of films. And that's what really makes it fun. You get to see new styles of writing um, and see films from all over the world. I think we've got more than a dozen countries represented this year and um, everything from short films that are, you know, two minute films up to full feature length films, an hour and a half to two hours. And there's a really, really good mix of films this year. How do these people find Rev Sisters Film Festival or how do you find them? Oh, well, we do go out. So there are three partners, myself and Liza Miller and Shana Sanderson from here in the U.S. We go out and actually recruit. So if we've seen, um, you know, friends that are working on projects or seen films in different places, we'll send invitations out. But we thankfully, after a couple of years now, are becoming a little bit more well-known. So there are times that people seek us out, which is exciting. And the website is revsisters.com. Yes, it is. All right. Oh, that's great. Okay. Brian, what have you got? Um, on the 1st of October, uh, Saturday the 1st of October, we're going to have a launch of the Motorcyclist Awareness Month um, for the state of Victoria. Um, 
you may know that I, I sit on a panel um, which is called the Motorcycle Community Engagement Panel, which um, is chaired by the Minister for the Department of Transport in our government here in Victoria. Now, this um, uh, launch is to highlight the needs of motorcyclists on the road and try and personalise them so that they, uh, to other uh, um, road users, so that, you know, make try and make life a little bit easier on our roads, particularly the congested roads of Melbourne and here in Victoria. So I'm going to encourage anyone who rides a bike in and around Melbourne who listens to this program to get down to Queensbridge Square on the, um, the Yarra River there uh, opposite the Crown Casino uh, on the 1st of October from 9 to 12. The uh, minister will be there. Um, we'll have bikes on display. We'll have um, hopefully um, a police car, if I can arrange it, set up so that um, people can see how to set mirrors correctly in a car so that you um, can eliminate blind spots so you can spot motorcyclists. Mm. And we'll be doing such things as having a, a Joe and Jill rider riding around um, Melbourne in peak hour traffic, uh, and if you spot them, you ring into this radio station with um, the chance to win $500 worth of fuel, things like that. So for the whole month of October, we'll be running events um, to highlight the um, motorcycling uh, here in Victoria. So that launches on the 1st of October at Queensbridge Square. Wow, very nice. Five hundred dollars in fuel nowadays. That's not that much. What was that like two tanks for the bike, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, so this is the this is what you've been sitting on for I think a couple of years now. It's been a couple of years ago <clears throat> on this this committee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. You you uh, had yeah, talked COVID to sort of got in the way, but we've done we've we've done a few things with it. Um we've created a a um a, what we call oh, what's called a crash card with um uh, your details, blood group, etc. That uh, on a little card that you put inside your helmet. That um, emergency service workers are aware of it, and hospitals are now aware of it. And so then you that, put a little mark on the helmet. You have a, a, a logo yeah, you put on the helmet, right? A little, uh, a little dot goes on the outside of the helmet, so emergency service workers know that there's um, your details are inside the helmet. Um, uh, that we've got that up. We've been assessing road markings. Um, to assist motorcyclists, particularly in um, areas where you know bike riders go to experience good cornering and all the rest of it, um, it's a study that's been done in New Zealand and Scotland, and we've we've trialled it here in Victoria now on um, some of our mountain roads, and it works. So inexperienced riders who don't know how to set up and take a corner properly and apex a corner and um, that sort of thing. It actually works, which surprised me, actually. So, But we've done things like that. And the next thing is this Motorcyclist Awareness Month. And, of course, it coincides with the MotoGP that we have here. So um, we'll have a presence down there as well. And you've never had a Motorcycle Awareness Month of, of any kind there before? Uh, no, I know, I know it's, it's been done in the States um, before. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's never happened in our state here in Victoria but it has happened in other places in, in Australia. Well, good for you guys doing that. One of the things I remember you mentioning was the um, some of the barriers that they put up, which are just horrible metal barriers. I mean, and they're doing some here uh, where I am in Ontario, Canada now, where they've got these, it's almost like metal T-bar with cables going through them on the corners. Yeah. It's just, they're horrible. Cables uh, are terrible. Yeah. That's the yeah. worst. Yeah. 
Yeah. I can relate. Um, did you get anywhere with that, Brian? Did you get any of the powers that be to listen to that? Um, no, they basically said that it, it is going to happen and uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, it's all about cost, but it's, it's, it's false economy in my opinion. We've got it on freeways here. And now um, the people that uh, maintain the, the verges of the freeway to keep the grasses down, they can't get in to do it. So that attracts animals to the area oh, to, to eat the grass. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Uh, it's it's odd, isn't it, when they talk about saving money, you know, and, and but I thought safety was supposed to trump everything, you know. Safety uh, is supposed to be yeah. number one. It's still a fight that we're still having, Jim. Yeah. Well, so. That's interesting. Well, great that you're doing it. Great, great work that you're doing there. But uh, okay, um, I'll move on to Sam. What do you have, Sam? Mm, well, I'm going to talk about uh, the next presentations, of course. Tomorrow night, I'm uh, presenting at BMW Motorcycles of Detroit. So um, shout out for them, even though this is going to be coming out late for them. But then I am presenting down at Frontline Eurosports in Salem, Virginia. And that's on Friday, September the 23rd. Might just be out in time for that. And from there, I'm heading down to the BMW Riders Association 50th Anniversary Rally in Waynesville, North Carolina. That's the 29th of September to the 2nd of October. And then I'm rounding off the trip at Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia, between October 7th and 9th. And, you know, if listeners have not been able to link up with me on this tour, then, you know, hopefully I'll come for one next year. But of course, in the meantime, you can get my books as audiobooks on the Kindle and as paperbacks. And again, um, I started off by saying this, but I really would like to thank everybody who's turned up to one of my presentations to date. It has been fantastic meeting so many people. And uh, yeah, thank you for your support. It's it's great. Cheers. Sam, now, when you're at any of these, like when you're doing the, these presentations, do you have books and, and stuff there as well with you? Absolutely. Yep. I ship them out from the UK. So they're the colour photo um, versions. And um, yeah, it's um, it's been really, really good so far um, with book sales. Nice. And um, yeah, t-shirts too. I've actually sold out of the long sleeve t-shirts already, which is um, a bit of a gobsmacker. Yeah, and I was talking to you about those t-shirts. They sound like you've uh, you've really done your research on them. T-shirts that you can you can actually wear. <laughs> so that's that's nice. People like them, but um, there will be more. Grant, how about you? What have you got? Well, we have a couple, two travelers meetings left this year. Um, sorry, I'm, I stand corrected. Three. We have Ecuador, September 24th to 25th. It's a weekend event, and a lot of people are looking forward to that. They've been not had they've not had anything for a while, so that's going to be good. And then Germany is their 26th Germany travelers meeting. HU travelers meeting. That's 26th. 29th of October. You know, they do two a year. Wow. Oh, okay. Fill up every time. It's just amazing. Um, South Africa, hard to believe, but the ninth travelers meeting is coming up for them, November 3 to 6. And that's and where Mickness and, and Elspie are going, are going, right? going to be they're there. Be that's there? where they're going. They'll right. be there. You're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to pressure Good. you more. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we're looking at next year, of course, and we've got lots in the, in the works for that. So we hope to have a really full schedule for next year. And that's uh, the information about that is all at horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events. You got it. Thank you, Jim. 
Well, that is wonderful. Mickness and Elspeth, thank you very much for coming. I know you guys have stayed up late for this. I, I don't know. What, what time is it now for you guys locally? Uh, half past one, one in the half morning. Past in the morning. <laughs> half past yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. maybe we'll just drag yeah, this out a little bit longer. I'm curious how long they can stay awake for. Okay, well, that's good. We haven't had an after party for years. That's that's a great idea. So we'll head over to, to your place. Um, it's in South Africa, everybody. So you better get going here. Uh, if you need any help with this, we can we can have the jet go by and pick you up if you're having trouble with your transportation. Wow. <laughs> so so meet there. That was great, everyone. Thank you very much. Had a real fun time, and, and especially thank you, Elsby and and Mickness for um, for staying up so late. Well, thanks for inviting thank us. You. Good to thanks, have you guys with us. Yeah. yeah, it's brilliant to have you on. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Right, right sake, everybody. And you too, Brian. Bye, everybody. Take care. Cheers. Bye, <laughs> bye. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.